and gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No, because I'm going to get him. This Monday, February 12th edition of the Hagman Report, February 12th, 2018. Joe Hagman here, your co-host, along with Doug Hagman, who, as usual, at least this year, is running late, even though he's been in the studio literally for 10 hours. Can't find his way to the office on time. I hear the volume fluctuating in my ear, Eric, uh, maybe a little high, a little loud, um, but as the guests come on in the second and third hour we can work with that yeah that's that's definitely a little better we got a great show lined up for you tonight we have news in the first hour we're going to be covering a lot of things a lot of ground we have the olympics winter olympics in south korea and there is some interesting storylines coming out of there specifically from the media's coverage of north korea and the olympics so go to hagmanreport.com you can start there and there are a few stories uh, that we're going to cover in this first hour up there. And then in hour two, we're going to be joined by the author of Stealth Invasion, Leo Holman. And he's going to be joining us to talk about uh, everything from his book to the state of the politics in America and what we see happening with this Trump presidency, where he sees things going from here. And then in hour number three, uh, due to popular demand, we have a new segment that we're starting each Monday in the third hour with Peter Barry Chowka. Now, we started this last Monday and we're going to, we were going to continue it starting next Monday with the Cody Snodgrass guest, uh, tonight in hour three. But unfortunately, Cody has some, some medical issue going on. So keep him in your prayers. He will not be joining us tonight. Peter Chowka will be instead and he will be on with us each Monday in our number three. So looking forward to that. Uh, but a lot of news going on that we have, uh, still coming out. There's more and more coming out. Uh, Dad, I know you talked about the Obamagate, the FISA memo uh, today on your show, a, a, a narrative you've been talking about for weeks now as more information comes out each day. And there's an article up on the Gateway Pundit by Jim Hoff. And I don't know if you saw this, but it talks about the, uh, uh Chuck Grassley uncovered an unusual email from NSA advisor Susan Rice implicating the Obama Obama administration, DOJ, and FBI in spying on opposition candidate Trump using a dirty using dirty FISA warrants. That is the title of this article. And there was a email that was released today by Chuck Grassley from Susan Rice. And I don't have the contents in the email here which I'm going to pull this up. But Catherine Heritage on Fox reported that uh, she made a claim, or she made a point to send an email to herself about why congressional leaders were not aware of the Obama administration investigation into Trump because they knew it was illegal. She didn't use those words, but that is what is implied by the article here. And uh, I'm going to pull this up, this email up. And this just broke too uh, today. And at, on the heels of this, what we're not seeing it's on Drudge, 
uh, and I saw a few pieces on CNN today, but uh, Donald Trump Jr.'s wife, Donald Trump's daughter-in-law, was sent an envelope with white, a white powder substance in it, causing uh, hazmat to come out and them to be hospitalized in order to make sure that it was nothing harmful. And it doesn't seem that it was harmful, but we're going to talk more on that later. As that, that is still a developing story. So here is the original article. Grassley uncovers bizarre Susan Rice email to herself on secret meeting with Comey, Yates, and Obama on spying on Trump. The uh, Senate, Chuck Grassley, Senator Chuck Grassley, posted this official, uh, to his website Monday, his official website Monday. Ambassador Rice appears to have used this email to document a January 5th, 2017 Oval Office meeting between President Obama, former FBI Director Comey, former... Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates regarding Russian interference in the 2016 election. In particular, Ambassador Rice wrote, President Obama began the conversation by stressing this continued commitment to ensuring every aspect of the issue is handled by the intelligence and law enforcement communities. By the book, the President stressed that he is not asking about initiating or instructing anything from from a law enforcement perspective. He reiterated that our law enforcement team needs to proceed as it normally would by the book. Now, Chuck Grassley says, It strikes him as odd that among your activities in the final moments on the final day of the Obama administration, you would feel the need to send yourself such an unusual email purporting to document a conversation involving Obama and his interactions with the FBI regarding a Trump-Russia investigation In addition, despite your claim, Obama repeatedly told Mr. Comey to proceed by the book, substantial questions have arisen about whether officials at the FBI, as well as the DOJ and State Department, actually did proceed by the book. Uh, Grassley and Graham sent Susan Rice a list of questions that she must answer, and they think the deadline on that is February 22nd. This is January 22nd for some reason. But either way, there are a number of questions that have arisen from people inside the top levels of the Obama administration as to their activity in this spying and in the uh, using weaponizing the surveillance systems and law enforcement agencies against a political candidate. And we have more information each day now that shows there are more extensions, much further than just the FISA warrants that were issued. You had the NSA, you had... Just imagine every, what is it, 16 or 17 agencies minus probably 16 the with the OD and the, Right. You, you had about half of those actively spying on Donald Trump and all the people involved in his campaign. Now, now Nunes, Nunes, is probing, uh, uh, Nunes is probing Brennan's role in this. So so here's where we're at with this. And, yeah, they said he's a leaker. Well, Did you see that today? Yeah, yeah. And he's more than that, though. You've got, uh, and I touched on this, um, in my show, but, but the bottom line is you've got the, uh, the, the Nunes memo, and then of course the Schiff memo. And I know folks. I, Which was not released. The president said right. no because, and this is, uh, you know, the catch 22. Apparently the Democratic alternative memo was filled with the methods, filled with the sources. But this was a setup. Either, exactly. Because it was a setup. Either had to redact it to release it. Or not release it at all because of the information right. it contained to try to make Trump look bad. So, so okay. So imagine this: you've got you've got the Grassley memo that came out, uh, the the, the four page memo. Everybody was anticipating. Bam! It comes out. There it is. All right. So that's what it, it is. What it is. All right. Uh, then 
in op- in in response to that you've got the democratic memo the progressive left memo and this of course is 10 pages sent to sent to the white house now notice the votes in the house with respect to uh releasing the memo no democrat or progressive voted to release the nunes memo what did they do with the uh with the uh with the democratic memo of course all the democrats voted to release that but it was a setup for donald trump because he there was no way he could release that in its in its entirety as as you just right. said but it was a setup to make it appear to create optics that donald trump is withholding information mm-hmm. oh my gosh hold the phone you look what donald trump is doing he's he's playing uh, party politics when in fact it's it's not that and look at how it yeah. failed. They gained no traction That's aside right. from, you know, a few Twitter threads uh, of all their complaining about this not being made public. You don't have people calling for it to be made public. I think most of the American yeah. people understand it for what it is. And well, that was set up, like you said. And, and the other the other part of this is the State Department. Where does the State Department come in? And, and this is what we have to pay attention to as well. The State Department. Go back to the 1950s, and if you haven't done so, um, in you obviously um, go back to the 1950s and, and, and look at the uh, communist infiltration, Senator Jim McCarthy. Please don't ever use McCarthyism. Don't ever use that phrase. That is so incorrect. Joe McCarthy, Senator Joe McCarthy, was was absolutely 100% accurate with respect to communist infiltration in, in the State Department in the 50s. And, and there's a lot of uh, people that confuse the activities, the investigation the investigation of Senator Joe, Joe McCarthy with the House Un-American Activities Commission. Senator Joe McCarthy, House Un-American Activities uh, Committee. Two two separate entities. But the reason I'm, I'm saying this is because the State Department back then was really the, the uh, uh, petri dish of communist infiltration. Look what we had under Clinton. And, and look what we had under the larger Obama, as well as going back to the Clinton administration forward. The State Department has been used as this red-green infiltration, the, the method of infiltrating spies. Now, uh, in addition to all this, expect more memos. We've said this. Uh, Aren't they uncovering new... Yeah. Uh, like, yeah, the, the State Department you mentioned, they're... Uh, I guess you call it, they're, they're being called dossier or dossiers. Dossiers, yeah. Apparently there's four or five of them, uh, documents that were reports that were right. well, you've got up by the, you, by the left under different departments in the Obama administration. Yeah, you've got the, and, and, uh, to, to really lay, lay this out, and I think one, one night we really should lay this all out again, but reinforce the information. Um, you've got, you've got the, Steele dossier, which is incorrectly named. It should be the Hillary Clinton dossier because Hillary Clinton paid for it. The DNC paid for it. Uh, as well as the FBI. They in part paid for it, but it should be called the Clinton dossier. And then of course you've got a second dossier that was released, parts of which were, which were released to the, I believe it was the Guardian. And, uh, that of course was authored by Steele, but also when you're looking at this, you, you cannot discount the role that the lower-level DOJ people, such as um, Bruce Orr and his wife Nellie Orr, oh, yeah. Nellie Orr uh, working for Fusion GPS, who really wrote that that dossier? Uh, it's not necessarily Steele. We know that Hillary paid for it, but who wrote it? Uh, I, I would be inclined to say Steele probably did not write it. I think it was more in term, more in line with uh, with either Nellie Orr or 
um, someone else. But 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 what's at the root of what, what's Fusion GPS? It was fathered by what three journalists: Glenn Simpson, Peter Fritsch, and Tom Caton. And uh, it's expanded obviously since then. But think about the the journalist back in 2010. Think about the journalists and think about the role that the media is playing today. The Mockingbird media is playing today with respect to the. Uh, this Russian narrative. The Russian narrative is failing. The end of the road or the light at the end of the tunnel is we are nearing that and I want to encourage everybody because I I can see between the OIG investigation the Horowitz investigation yes I know okay you can you can talk about Michael Horowitz uh, you know you can talk about Devin Nunes you can talk what is happening here is Nunes is widening his probe to include John Brennan his links to the, the Trump dossier and, and, uh, he's planning to investigate whether, whether John Brennan played a role in promoting this unverified dossier. And, uh, that's a real clear investigation is reporting on that. But the State Department, by the way, is, uh, saying that still, the steel dossier was never used for the FISA application. And, but okay. Now, wow. are the, um, are the original, I know a lot of people on both sides of the aisle have been calling for the original documents that the Nunez memo was built on to be released. Do we know if there's any yep. further traction on that? Uh, there will be a House vote, and I'm not sure when this will be. The House Intelligence Committee, the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, to be accurate, will have a vote on releasing the entire foundational documents, I suppose with redactions or with modif- with redactions because of the sources and, and methods, but the bottom line, it will show who put their, somebody corrected me, Benedict Arnold's signature on there, and not John, John Hancock, but Benedict Arnold's signature on that. Um, and I think that, I think that's clear, but it also will give the components, the foundational documents for this, the dossier. And, uh, for, for the FISA warrant, that is. Well, listen to this. With the, uh, publishing of, of the dossier back when the DOJ and uh, FBI were shopping it to the media. Only the only website that would publish it, because as it, Comey said, it was what malicious and salacious, unverified. The only organization that would publish it is BuzzFeed. Now BuzzFeed is being sued by by the president, in be, because and of the, others, but okay, and others, but because of the unverified um, information that the Speculation. What would you call it? Uh, defamation. Defamation. Okay, there you go. But former, listen to this, a former FBI officer, official, is leading BuzzFeed's effort to verify the Trump dossier. Anthony Fernet coordinated the U.S. government's response to Russian election interference. Now he's helping a new site defend itself from a Russian billionaire's lawsuit. And this goes on to say, for over six months, a team led by former top FBI and White House cybersecurity official have been traveling the globe on a secret mission to verify the Trump dossier, according to four sources familiar with the but different he, aspects he, of the let's just let's just say client, that, BuzzFeed. Yeah, okay. Let, let's just say that was verified, or let, let, take take it for what it what, what it says. That's fine. Well, let's just say what the heck? Why not? Oh, we verified uh, all the information, all the information in there, which you can't. it's not. You can't. But let's just say that that does happen. It, it still does not take away the fact that they used this for an abuse of the process, taking away not uh, taking away Donald Trump and and others' Fourth Amendment 
rights. Uh, it, this is absolutely really unforgivable. And uh, don't forget, you're looking at uh, the, the FISA Section 702 versus Title One. There's a difference there. Title One uh, it was used against Carter Page. That's a much more serious kind of um, uh, surveillance. So all of this, when, when you look at this, all of this combined, you're looking at this tremendous abuse of power. And it's interesting because Brendan was on NBC's Meet the Press this weekend. He lashed out at Devin Nunes and says, wait a minute, Devin Nunes is, uh, has abused the office of the chairmanship with respect to the memo. Now, um, Nunes will be releasing a separate report detailing the role of the State Department under under Barack Obama and uh, in creating and disseminating this 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 bunch of crap. All right. Uh, now, the uh, uh, it, I believe that this report and it's it's being reported elsewhere on the internet that there will be the identity uh, of various diplomats who work with those close to Clinton uh, who created the. And we work close with uh, Steele, who created this dossier. Remember, and I talked about him before, Sid Blumenthal and Cody Shearer. Remember those two. Remember, remember those names. And I'm going to throw a third name out, out while we're talking about this because this is so important. Out of all of this that's going on, this is what I talked about a little bit in my show this morning. Out of all the names you hear being tossed about, who's not being talked about? Uh, that, that was was within the FBI framework. And the guy's name is Bill Priestep. Well, who is Bill Priestep? He was Peter Strzok's boss, Batman's boss. He was really the head of the counterintelligence division at the FBI. And Bill Priestep was the guy who told Comey um, not to tell the gang of eight, just to be clear now, uh, about the counterintelligence, in quotation marks, investigation against the Donald Trump campaign. So go back to the, the campaign. We have to go back there. And this is important. Go back to the campaign, and you have the intelligence agencies conducting surveillance via FISA warrant against Donald Trump, against his associates, including but not limited to Carter Page. Who knows everything about everybody? It's a guy by the name of Bill Priestep. Peter Strzok or Batman's boss reporting to Comey. When Cody testified at the House Intelligence Committee, in the House Intelligence Committee, when Comey testified, he, Elise Stefanik, and I played this clip this morning, there is a three minute exchange, or a seven minute exchange between Comey and Elise Stefanik, the upstate, the resident of upstate New York, in fact, the youngest House member and a junior. At the time, junior house member. But her questioning was laser-like. And Comey, Joe, he re- Comey refused to name Bill Priestep by name. He refused, he said, um, he was urged not to, not to report to the Gang of Eight, uh, by mm-hmm. his counterintelligence head, that being Bill Priestep. Here, here's what I'm getting at. I'm that gets get- back into the Rice memo, or the Rice email. Uh, right. But I, I'm gonna say one thing. Here's what I'm getting at. I'm getting at this. I'm getting at the, I'm getting at the fact that um, Bill Priestep is most likely deep throat, most likely talking. He's the guy that's probably uh, flipped on the um, on, on on everyone. I believe this to be the case because otherwise you'd be hearing more about him and more from him. But I do believe. But it, okay, so it goes back to the Rice deal, and, and don't forget about the unmasking aspect of this because of the different parts. You got the surveillance. 
the authorization of the surveillance and the actual surveillance, and then you've got the unmasking. And then you've got the leaking and publication thereof. Well, this, uh, this article is very interesting, again, about BuzzFeed being sued as they have a hired a firm and a former FBI senior official to verify parts of, of this dossier in order to get them off the hook for a lawsuit not only by Donald Trump but also by uh, a billionaire, a Russian billionaire, uh, where is his name again? Uh, anyway, he is accused, uh, Gubrov. He argues that the news organization was reckless in publishing a series of memos written by Christopher Steele. Those memos, part of the so-called dossier of information about Trump, include unverified claims that servers belonging to a company owned by Gubrov were used to hack the D- Democratic Party's computer systems during the 2016 election. Uh, okay, the, well, let's, let's, let's stop right the there, oh, Okay, go on, go on. The lawyer for Gubroff has strongly denied the claims, saying they can hire Nancy Drew, Encyclopedia Brown, or Sherlock Holmes. You can't find what doesn't exist. There's a simple reason why BuzzFeed hasn't found any evidence to support the allegations. They are not true. All right. And then it goes on to say that their, BuzzFeed's legal woes don't end there, as Trump's personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, is also, uh, with Trump also suing BuzzFeed. So you have uh, multiple people in multiple countries suing BuzzFeed over publishing this unverified information. And, and I don't know how many people have read the 35-page dossier about uh, Donald Trump but uh, or the entire 35-page dossier, but the bottom line, um, to, to me, that that is perhaps the... Uh, um, the publication of that, especially unverified publication, is perhaps the very definition of defamation. So I think that there's a good case there to be made. But when you're talking about weaponization of the intelligence agencies against a presidential candidate by an, uh, an opposing presidential candidate or a candidate for president by Hillary Clinton under the supervision of Barack Obama, this is Obamagate. This is Obamagate. Let's, I agree with Sebastian Gorka. Let's start calling this what it is. It's Obamagate. It's Obamagate, period. It's it's more than Hillary Clinton. Obama was part and parcel to this as much as Hillary Clinton was, or at least he knew about it through the presidential daily briefings. And this is where I don't agree with Andrew McCarthy, uh, but whom I disagree. Okay, he's a former federal prosecutor, but the fact that you know he said that the president's job was to be informed of counterintelligence surveillance operations because that's what this was a counterintelligence operation as opposed to a criminal investigation. Now, this was a political assassination. Hit job is what it was. This was an attempt to take over by, by the deep state, by the permanent state, against the, a, a presidential candidate in order to neutralize him politically. That's what this is about. So in case that anyone's lost, and I apologize if if, if I lost anyone in the uh, in, in the uh, uh, conversation here, but but you have to really look at this for what it is. This is all about Obama attempting to extend his presidency, however illegitimate it was, for another eight years under Hillary Clinton. And remember, remember where Obama came from, from virtual obscurity to the highest office in the land. Who was his, I mean, who who is Obama? Remember we asked that question back in 2007, 2008. Who is this guy? And, of course, no one would really answer that question. Oh, he put up this birth certificate, right, up on the Internet. Isn't it, isn't it interesting, by the way, that Sidney Blumenthal, a Clinton confidant, was a, was a really a big part in raising the question about Obama's legitimacy. 
when you think about this, this, this is mind-blowing. Sidney Blumenthal was one of the first people to raise the questions, at least in the political circles, on behalf of Hillary, Hillary Clinton to question Barack Obama's legitimacy for running for president. Of course, he was talking about uh, Obama for, uh, being from Kenya, but nonetheless, I cast a doubt about his legitimacy under the uh, uh, under uh, Article Article Two, Section One of the Constitution of the United States. So the bottom line is this: you've got an Obama operation enforced by Clinton, Hillary, and her associates, and the associates of Bill and Hillary, weaponizing the political apparatus or the uh, intelligence apparatus, intelligence community for political purposes. And now you've got the Congress uncovering all of this, and you can see the battle lines forming. Joe, the, the Adam Schiff, uh, the uh, the other progressives in Congress, you can see what's going on mm-hmm. there. And this tie, and look, this also ties in, and I'll I'll just mention this because I know we're up against the bottom of the hour break. This also ties in to the Awan uh, infiltration into well, I'm sure it the House, into the House. I'm sure it does in many ways. Uh, but I don't know any specifics on that. That's something you're going to have to, to lay out. But how can this all not be connected? It is, um, it's amazing what has happened and what is even more amazing what's, what, what's been uncovered over the last two years that all this stuff has been ongoing. And looking at a, a news article here, uh, while we are wrapping up the hour from BBC on, from March 30th, 2017, Trump Rus- Russia dossier key claim verified. I read through this whole article as we were talking there, and they don't. The only thing that they verified is that uh, uh, some Russian minister on the um, an economic ambassador possibly was a spy and went home after a six-year post was over. But this is how ridiculous uh, this is. Crazy. A year later, was talking about the same Trump Russia investigation, which even in this article from 2017 in March says the investigation has no proof. But more sure will but, be but, revealed well, later. Well, we're not talking. Uh, when we come back, I want to tell you because we're not talking about this investigation. No, I know. You know, we're t- we're talking about the the, the spying operation that, that took place against Donald Trump. Go ahead. But the uh, investigation is uh, one of the key vehicles in the attempt to undermine the Trump presidency. So we're going to continue to get into this on the other side. Again, half hour news. Then Leo Holman will join us, followed and closing out the show by Peter Barry Chowka. Don't go anywhere. Back to this edition of the Hagman Report. Boy, it's a, it's a Monday, all right. Does it feel like a Monday to you? It feels like a Monday to us, right? Yeah. It, 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 it is. It's Monday, February 12th, 2018. Day 389, I believe it is, of the draining the swamp, uh, agenda. I want to tell you, we, uh, you know, I trust 
our security. The studio at the, or the security at the studio, the security at my office, and the studio at my home to one company, and that is Simply Safe. SimplySafe.com slash Hagman. Folks, I want you to remember that. SimplySafe.com slash Hagman. You know, I've been working with, uh, uh, Simply Safe for quite a while now. Uh, for well over, my goodness, it's been over a year. Number of years, actually. And they've transformed into the fastest growing home security company in the nation. Now they protect over 2 million people. Well, I've got to tell you, they just released their brand new home security system, the, the all new Simply Safe. Just when you thought it couldn't get any better, it is. This is the right way to protect your home, by the way. This system has been completely rebuilt and redesigned. They've added new safeguards to protect against power outages. Downed Wi-Fi, cut landlines, bats, hammers, guns, whatever, anything, everything in between. The all-new Simply Safe was redesigned to be practically invisible, with powerful sensors so small you'll hardly notice them. But you know who will? Intruders. <laughs> Simply Safe spent years building this system. They've added so much. You're still going to get the same fair and honest price. You can't, you can't beat it. 24 seven protection for only $15 a month. There's no contract. You can cancel at any time, but you won't want to. It's smaller. It's faster. It's stronger than anything they've built before. But folks, the supply is very limited. Here's what you need to do. Visit simplysafe.com slash Hagman. That's simplysafe.com slash Hagman. One more time. That's simplysafe.com slash Hagman to protect your home and your family. Just go to simplysafe.com slash Hagman. As a matter of fact, go to HagmanReport.com and there's a link to Simply Safe right there, uh, for you. And I'll, t- I'll tell you something. It's, it's, I, lo- I love Simply Safe. I love the, the equipment. And hey, I've been an investigator for, for 30 years and I'll, I'll tell you something. This security system is the top of the line in my view. And we've added cameras. They've got cameras. Now it's incredible. And, and their, their, um, uh, their response with respect to the, uh, uh, monitoring service. I've never, I've never been more pleased. We had an incident where, <laughs> yeah, I pushed the, uh, alarm button, the panic button. And I'll tell you something. It was like right now the monitoring station was on the phone just to make sure everything was all right. Absolutely incredible. It was, I, I couldn't, I, from the time I pushed that, accidentally pushed the, uh, uh, alarm button to the time I, uh, made it to the phone. It was that quick. I mean, that's how fast they, they responded in terms of monitoring and making sure everything's alright. Simplysafe.com slash Hagman. Alright. By the way, when you were talking, Joe, about, about the, uh, article on, uh, uh, FP, the, uh, the guy, just to be clear, the guy that's going around Europe looking for proof, that's none other than Cody Shearer. And who's Cody Shearer? Cody Shearer is the, is the best bud, the BFF of Sidney Blumenthal. Okay, well, this um, this article lists somebody different, a former FBI agent. Right. Well, uh, there's more than okay. actually, there's more than one because his name is not on this uh, right, this right article. Uh, but it, not surprising. Well, and this is so bizarre how this is going. Um, now, he, Cody Shearer is this American political operative with ties to the Democratic Party, as it's described, right? Now, look, this guy is a, a Clinton sycophant. He's a Blumenthal uh, BFF. I don't know how else to describe him. But he's been going across Europe for months now, for like six months, trying to verify this. And, and it's ridiculous. Um, 
he was there was something in Breitbart, and I, I would read it, but I'm not going to read it. Uh, uh, let's see. Well, I'm going to just cite one sentence here. The New York the New York Times reported this on Friday. He said uh, they, they said this reached by phone late last year. Sure, say that his work was, and I'm quoting now, a big deal. You know what it is, and you shouldn't be asking about it. Then he hung up. So we've got Batman. That's Peter Strzok. Now we've got um, the Pink Panther, Cody Shearer, going around. Uh, you okay? I don't know whether people heard that. Hiccup. There was a hiccup by my my daughter was in the studio today. But anyway, so th- this is what's what's taking place. You've got a lot of CYA going on, and remember the name too. I just I, I remember Cody Shearer. Remember Sid Blumenthal. But remember Bill Prestep. Remember that name. Judge Deneen did a piece uh, this weekend, I think it was, uh, with uh, oh, one of the members of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. I can't remember the name of the House member. But she asked about Bill Prestep, and he wouldn't say a word. I, I played the clip on my show. He, he wouldn't He wouldn't say He said, no, I, I can't talk about it. I can't talk about it. Man, if you look at that, if you look at him, the way he reacted, Oh, yeah, it tells you everything you need to know because he, because he, he also said too, and again, I, I forgive me for not, uh, remembering who this was, but I don't want to make news. In other words, I don't want, you know, to, what he was saying is this, in, in terms of the house investigation, that is a big deal. So watch for the name Bill Priestup to come up. I had talked about him for a number of weeks now. And so is, uh, Dan Bongino, in case you, Dan Bongino is, is, got his own talk show as well as being on, on Fox News quite often. But uh and he also had to run for public office. But nonetheless, he he's been talking about the Bill Prestep. Watch for him. Alright. So watch that remember the names. That's what that's what Bongino said. Former Secret Service officer and author. Remember the names, remember the dates. They're very important. Go ahead. Well I don't know where you want to go from here, but uh, as we mentioned at the very top of the show, the Winter Olympics are uh, taking place in South Korea, and some of the media coverage over the weekend was really interesting and uh, making headlines of its own, and some of that is from the New York Times as well as NBC, basically lifting up and and glorifying Kim Jong-un's sister, who, as John pointed out, is the Minister of Propaganda for North Korea. Oh, the Evil Eyes sister. Yeah, um, Evil Eyes. you, You can go to uh, newsbusters.org and there are a number of stories about this one uh, show that I put up on Hagman Report showcases a number of uh, media outlets that all got in on this you know praising of North Korea one of this one of these articles is from the New York Times and I'm going to pull this up here because it is worth uh, noting it, it says Kim Jong-un's sister outshines Pence in in uh, South Korea and Olympics, and then there were other articles that that uh, you know did the same same thing. Um, yeah, Kim Jong Un's sister upstages Pence at Olympics, and then you had NBC and others uh, heaping praise onto onto this uh, murderous dictator's sister, who is also an integral part of the North Korea regime, and it makes you wonder. You know, you see the media. And we understand that their mentality, they, as we talked about, John and I did on our show today, that the media and the mindset of these people who oppose Trump and oppose the people who support Trump, they hate Trump more than they love their country or love themselves. Isn't that the truth? 
Man, is that the truth. Right? I mean, they will take the most extreme. If Trump said, you know, he was for curing cancer and, uh, you know, eliminating death, these people would be cheering on cancer and death. That's how crazy it is. And this is just another great example of this, of how uh, it doesn't matter, you know, if just by their presence, just by them being in the office of presidency right now, what we see the media doing to the Trump administration is it's horrifying to see, but they will go to any extent. They will take on any uh, position to oppose Trump, regardless of if it's moral or ethical or right. It doesn't matter. Okay. Opposition to Trump is key, first and foremost, and everything else, you know, who cares? Uh, just as we're not on the same side as him. And it's really sad. And you see it bleeding through the uh, the coverage of the uh, Olympics. And it is... Um, it's something crazy to watch, and it seems like these people should learn their lesson. We've gone a long way from the 1980 Olympics. Remember that when it was USA, USA, and the hockey team, and they made they even made movies about that. But we've come a long way, and, and now the progressives who are out to destroy the country, the 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 really the, the I say progressives. I hope you know what I mean. The liberal Democrats, the progressives, the um, the people in office uh, who are or the, the people with that ideology will just hate the United States, absolutely hate our nation. They want to destroy our nation. They want to destroy Donald Trump. They hate this. Mm-hmm. So to politicize the Olympics, as we've seen, come on, man. I mean, really, remember the glory days, if 1980 was the glory days, I guess, but remember that. Remember when there was national pride, um, when we beat the Russians yeah, way back then. And, and compare that to now. What's what's taking place? Yeah, it is crazy. Uh, there's also a piece, ABC's Amy Warbach baits another gay Olympian to bash Mike Pence. And this is <laughs> a theme because Pence was in attendance sitting only four seats away from uh, Kim Jong-un's sister. And that's why you see all these headlines of, of them tying the Trump administration into uh, Kim Jong-un in South Korea. And it is, um, it's just amazing to watch. And uh, I know it's coming. I just don't know what form it's going to take when it does come. And it's, uh, when what comes? The, what are you talking when, about? When the spin, the, uh, you know, you didn't, you think that the media can't get, sink any lower, that they can't get any worse. And then they go and, and he preys on, on North Korea and the leaders of North Korea while trashing Mike Pence as though they, it, it's amazing to me. As I said, they don't, it's a deception. It's a spirit of deception and they are, wholly given over to it and they don't see it you know i'm going to go back to something you said and and i I don't mean to sound like a broken record here with respect to the investigation about uh the the fisa memo the surveillance and such over donald trump but uh but you had talked about a that unusual email by susan rice yep all right the last day of her uh, the day of the, the trump inauguration uh, Rice wrote the email to herself yep. on her last day. Okay, it wasn't the. It was. It, it, oh yeah, it was the last day. It was at twelve fifteen p.m. on January twentieth. Yes, to document a meeting, uh, information from a meeting on January fifth. Right, and and two of the three people in that room no longer have jobs. Uh, President Obama, well, he left by default. James Comey, the former FBI director and Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates, who was fired by Trump for uh, insubordination. All right. I just want to uh, just make sure people understand this, that 
this email and Susan Rice, remember her position in Benghazi, or remember mm-hmm. her dealings with Benghazi. It was a YouTube video. Right. Didn't she give the five Sunday morning interviews? She, she went on, on five shows. Sunday. Yep. And I remember, I remember sitting with my father-in-law in his living room watching, uh, her, her performance on that Sunday, uh, following the terrible terrorist attack in Benghazi at the CIA compound and lying about this. But it's interesting because this particular, this unusual activity, that 12.15 on her, uh, on the day of the inauguration, as she's walking out the door, she presses the send button on her computer. The reason I'm bringing this back up again is you got to ask yourself why. And the contents of the memo, or the contents of the email, and here's what she wrote to herself. She wrote this. On January 5, following a briefing by intelligence community leadership on Russian hacking during the 2016 presidential uh, election, President Obama had a brief follow-up or follow-on conversation with FBI Director James or Jim Comey and Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates in the uh, Oval Office, I believe it is. It's just cutting me off here. Uh, the reason I'm bringing this up is because I, I really, everyone should really understand uh, in the Oval Office, right? Vice President Biden and I were also present. I think this is akin, in my view anyway, to a criminal creating a an alibi. All right? More on that in upcoming shows, just to tease you a little bit. This is a criminal creating an alibi. You want to show the little guy? Yeah, let's do this. Uh, he uh, came over by my feet, and he started s- scratching and laying by my feet, so I started petting him, and he then he put his two two paws up, wanting to get up here. Whoop. Come on, bud. But this in the studio, we have studio, both the uh, Lady and Theo. Yeah. Theo, check this out. Look in the camera. Yeah. Look at the camera. For, for those watching on on uh, on. On our global star or satellite feed, this is actually this is Theo, and he is my daughter and Eric the text dog, and that's uh, actually Lady's uh, adopted younger brother. This is my emotional say. support dog. There you go. Yeah. Do you see the uh, emotional the support hamster? Do you see the stories of the, the yeah the people not being able to take their um, animals, emotional support animals well, on the plane. Rightfully so. There, 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 was, there was a story about a woman with a, an emotional support hamster who had to flush the hamster. Okay, okay. I don't buy now, that. I don't either. There's a lot. There's a lot wrong with she that. She probably flushed it in lieu of letting it go, not catching her flight. Well, I can't it, see it's ridiculous employee. because her story says that the. An employee of the airport, you know, basically took her to the bathroom and said, "You flush that thing down the toilet." Well, when they say that they never, that was not even an option that they proposed. Yeah, there's a whole lot wrong with the story, but the, I, I believe there's an abuse of the of the uh, service industry dogs. For example, uh, you, you know, it used to be all oh, the good old days. Remember the glory days when uh, you had a, a dog like a seeing eye dog for example you didn't have an emotional a bird for emotional right. support or a turtle or, or a frog or you know some and, kind of reptile come on and man. people might laugh at that but just in the last month there's been a, at least a handful of of incidents where people have been trying to bring emotional support parrots insects snakes the weirdest things that you can imagine as a, as emotional support animals onto flights causing the airlines to actually uh, redo their guidelines on on what is permissible and what's not. Now, if you have an emotional support animal, it has to go through a certain training. It has to be certified. It has to be a certain size. It can't uh, 
it can't be poisonous. I mean, there's all these new guidelines that the airlines are issuing because they are seeing a huge increase in people traveling with these emotional support. Well, I, look, there, there's so much abuse out there of the of the system of the process, and and that's a sad thing, especially for those in need of support animals. Uh, support. Uh, look, I, I I would not I would not hold any a grudge against anyone who would who had an animal, um, given the fact that let's say they were in war or something like that, or for a physical ailment. I'll tell you what, my dog, my dog, uh, knows, for example, when I'm sick. And if, if my blood sugar drops too low or, or gets too high, yeah, um, she actually knows and, and she, she'll now. bump me, bump my leg and she'll, you know, and, and as a matter of fact, I mean, I, I could tell you stories, but so I agree with, with the concept, but it, but the abuse is rampant there. Uh, so anyway, watch for war preparations. Israel is boosting air defenses yeah. right now. We're on the brink of, of watch, seeing some, some war break out in the Middle East, I think. And, uh, apparently, well, not apparently. Netanyahu is under uh, a criminal investigation that some say is similar to what Trump's going through. And I didn't know the details of this, uh, but we had a little discussion about it last night. I heard something on Hannity about it today, and I did some reading. And they're going after Netanyahu for, uh, they, they say, like a pay-to-play thing. He helped a friend, a uh, senior Hollywood executive of 20, 30-plus years, who was having problems with their visa, get their visa and in exchange got a box of cigars and some bottled water. And they're equating that to some kind of uh, personal benefit, but using your government position for personal benefit. But, hmm. I mean, if you look at what they said he's given in exchange, I don't think anybody in their right mind would even... Uh, <laughs> regardless, there was tension between Israel and Iran yep. as an Israeli yep. jet was shot down. A pilot was safe. But uh, there, there were, was a Russian jet shot no, down there in was a Syria. Russian commercial uh, plane crash. And, and you know, seventy-one people. Now, there's also reports that the right. uranium one CFO was that's killed. Right. He is not dead. He's still alive. I don't. Well, I don't no, know not where this. Okay. From. Now, uh, the uh, you're talking about passenger. What is it? Thirty-two or thirty? Don't know. Uh, okay. This this stems from a series of postings from QAnon or from Q. Um, a very I don't interesting. Know if they come from him, but no, no, there's they a hint, reference, they hint right? To it, right, right. It, it's people's uh, deciphering. There's there's something to what's going on here with that, and I think that we, we can't dismiss that. But uh, watch the infra- or with with the, with that. There's something wrong with that jet going down, that aircraft going down. And so, this, so what was it? There was a violation of Israeli airspace by drones, uh, Iranian drones. With respect to what? The, uh, and then the Israel launched some uh, airplanes and and jets, and then one was shot down. I don't know how the whole with respect to the Israel the Israeli jet yeah, about being yeah, shot I, down. I, I'm not exactly. I, I think we need we need some additional coverage on that in order to lay out the uh, really what happened with that. But I, look, I I just see us prepping for. I see the war preparations being made, and uh, whether it's you know whether war is going to be in between North and South Korea or in the Middle East, I really believe, and, I, and I've said it before and I'll, st- I'll say it again, war is really going to be, is, is going to start in Syria. It's going to be Syrian-centric, if you will. And, and look how devastated that country has been, or how devastated that country is from the uh, uh, foreign policy of Obama and uh, Clinton and Kerry. So, by the way, speaking of Obama, 
I don't know whether anyone saw this, but a myriad. Well, yeah, yeah, but the, the, did you see all that hideous portrait? All over, he you couldn't, you could not change the channel without seeing Obama and and Michelle Obama and Barack Obama uh, on the news. It was like, uh, I don't even know how to describe it. The every news station basically stopped their programming to interrupt and, and show the Obamas being a portrait unveiled. Of yeah, uh, as they say, he makes makes his first public political appearance since the uh, presidency well I, i'm not sure if that well anyway that, that that to me the daily caller has got a great piece on that um michelle obama unveiled her official portrait and the audience reaction says it all oh my goodness i don't know how many people have seen that portrait out there uh, of michelle obama yeah it's weird uh, it, it, there, I, I, let me pull this down because this is funny with one with with the um twitter um Missing. Michelle Obama in this apparent portrait of Michelle Obama. Uh, now here it is. Um, okay. Wait a second. Um, yeah, there, oh, it, some... there was one. I, yeah, I'm sorry. There was just, it was ridiculous. This, this, that's all right. Did, did she approve that before? Do we know? Do we know if, if she's the one that approves? This is an official portrait of First Lady Michelle Obama was unveiled at the Smithsonian gallery this morning. The painting was done by a Baltimore artist who is known for her social justice painting style. There's a painting style? Of social. Anyway. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, look at that thing. Uh, it's... It, look, if I would pay for something like that, I would want my money back. I don't know. Um, and and that's... that. You know, Joe, I think that's worthy of, of mention, too, because what we're seeing, what we've seen over the last uh, really half a century pushed off his art since the 60s. Oh, yeah. Art, and we talked it's about this. Corrupted. Absolutely. Everything from money laundering to uh, it, it's it, the quality of what is considered art, it's unbelievable. And using uh, body fluids and uh, feces and, you know, but yeah, crumbling I mean, up paper. It, it's it's just the art. Uh, it, it's unbelievable what passes for art. And, you know, uh, Paul Joseph Watson if you go through his YouTube channel, maybe right before or after Christmas, did a great maybe 20-minute video on how art has been uh, just destroyed by popular culture over the last two, three decades. And he's right on the It's line. intentional, though. I've yeah. never... It, well, it, art is supposed to reflect society. And if you look at yeah. the elite mentality of society, of course everything is going to be ugly and... Hideous. I mean, look at the, yep. the, the pedo rings that we've seen. Look at the artwork that stems from some of the people. That's the one. That's, and look at yeah. the artwork that, that some of the people who are accused of pedophilia have on their walls. It oh, is a reflection of, of, of life, apparently. Okay. okay. For the, for those watching on the, or for those listening, you can tune into the, the, uh, you can see this on YouTube later in the archive. But for those watching, there is the, there's a portrait right there. What do you think? What do you think? Stunning resemblance, isn't it? Eric said, yeah, you could have done that. Joe, what's that dress? I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, I, uh, yeah, I, I don't either. But but look, look at the forearms, or look at the biceps on that. Huh? Well, uh, she does have a... Yeah. But, but again, but again, as we were talking about though, Joe, I think, I think you're right. I think, you know, the, the assault on, on what, 
what passes for art, what passes for music, is uh, is really an assault that uh, we've seen take place over the last fifty years, uh, more than half a century, and uh, uh, it's part of it's part of degrading, I suppose, uh, our culture. And, and just like the assault on the nuclear family, on the biblical family, just like the assault on on our morals, morals and culture, it, it's just it's horrible. It's we got a, a funny email from a listener named Judy. Oh, yep. We appreciate your uh, uh, alterations on the Obama portrait, but we can't show that on the video feed. Interesting. Well, that, that that uh, that was a picture, a parody of a picture that appeared. Where I think it was on. Uh, I've, I've never seen uh, it before. It, it, it appeared at uh, that was of of uh, Barack Obama there, right? What I saw, what you showed me. Yeah, that was from the portrait, yeah. and then somebody tweaked it a lot and uh, okay. added that. Right. Well, we only got a minute left. We're going to be bringing on Leo Holman in the next hour, but I want to uh, just to close out the thoughts on North Korea and the media. The, the paper or the internet site, thefederalist.com has an article up that I'm going to post on Hagman Report. Dear America, your news media absolutely hates you. Yeah. It'd be nice to say that the American media doesn't hate this country. It'd be nice to claim that the press, while maintaining objectivity and balancing against bias, is still inherently American. They are patriots who love this country even as they report on its deficits. Then it goes to talk about North Korea. Yes, your media is propping up North Korea in order to disparage Donald Trump. I wish this was an exaggeration, but it's not. They're going to say, and you can read this article, and I'll post it on Hagman Report, but it's on thefederalist.com. So when we come back, author Leo Holman will be joining us. We're going to talk about his book, Stealth Invasion, his new website, leoholman.com, and in hour three, we'll be joined by Peter Chowka. We'll be right back. This is the Hagman Report for today. It is Monday, the 12th day of February. Isn't it, uh, isn't it exciting? Valentine's Day just two days away for your loved ones. Yeah. Okay. Now, coming up is, <laughs> I know Eric, um, newlywed, right? Uh, Leo Homan is coming up, of course, uh, leohoman.com. He, is just a tremendous investigative reporter. I, I was kind of laughing at his Twitter feed because, um, in fact, if you go to his Twitter feed at, you know, the at sign Leo Homan, H-O-H-M-A-N-N, uh, he's got a pretty good, uh, tweet up there from a couple of days ago. Um, Islamic Sharia law presented as totally innocuous and even fun. Isn't this lovely? And then, of course, this Islamic outreach. I'll tell you what, rather than me trying to explain it, you'll just have to go to at leohoman.com. But he's going to be coming on his book, Stealth Invasion. If you haven't read that, what a read that is. Stealth Invasion. It's uh, 
It's a tremendous book, by the way. Muslim Conquest Through Immigration and Resettlement Jihad. You talk about an eye-opener. Ah, oh, an incredible eye-opener. But with that, he's got a new article out at leohoman.com talking about uh, Islamic outreach again, referring back to his Twitter, his latest tweet. But um, uh, we're going to be talking about that and other things as he as he comes on leohoman.com. But going back to the art issue, the the uh, my we were talking off air about. I remember doing the interview uh, with a publication. I'm not even going to name the publication because, to me, it's just a rot publication. And we're talking about the uh, Pedogate scandal or the Pizzagate scandal or the Pizzagate crime and how, oh, it's a debunked conspiracy theory. Look at the art in people's homes. Would you have that in your home, the, the various sculptures, the various... There's about... Less than a half percent of art, I would ever, I, I would say really not, I'm not an art person at all. I couldn't care I, I, less. I, I'll tell you what, I love a great painting. I love a great landscape painting. I love, a, I love the, the paintings that, if you go to, if you go to like, uh, our public library on the bayfront, oh, some of the warships, most, and, yeah. some of the most gorgeous paintings that you've ever seen in your I life. I guess I like that. What do you, what would you call that today? Well, vintage, I Historical suppose. Historical and, and, uh, art depicting, you know, uh, it's, it's your city, your area, whatever it is. Uh, I, I can deal with that. But any kind of, anything else is, is with respect to the land, the anymore, uh, abstract stuff today. No, anymore. It's ridiculous. And again, Paul Joseph Watson has done a great video a few months back on the art world and, uh, so many of the problems in the art world. Well, we, we are absolutely pleased and blessed to have with us right now Leo Homan. LeoHoman.com, that's where to go. In fact, it's going to be in the show notes today. LeoHoman.com, uh, formerly with WND, but he's the author of Stealth Invasion. Stealth Invasion. It's, uh, Stealth Invasion subtext or subtitle, Muslim Conquest Through Immigration and Resettlement Jihad. It's a fantastic book. It's an, it's a must read for everyone out there to understand really how America and, uh, how America has been invaded and a, you know, the Muslim jihad via resettlement and, uh, in, invasion. You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's an amazing read. With us, Leo Holman. Mr. Holman, welcome back. Happy to be here, Doug, with you this evening. Thanks for having me on. Well, I'll tell you what, we were so glad to have you on and, uh, you're, you're doing some great, uh, journalistic work. Let's talk about your latest article if we can. Um, your investigative reporting, of course, on refugees, the global migration, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, and, uh, uh, of course, your, your, your website talking about where politics, culture, and religion intersect. What's going on with, uh, with what we're seeing with immigration and the alien invasion today? Well, unfortunately, Doug, the stealth invasion, as I call it, has, is continuing today under uh, President Trump, albeit at a much slower rate. Uh, we were bringing in about 100,000 refugees per year under President Obama, as you know, and about half of them were coming from Sharia-compliant, Muslim-dominated countries that hate us. Uh, so Trump comes in, and as you know, he tries to implement the travel ban and the refugee ban, it goes to court, and the long story, long, uh, short story on that whole thing is the the refugee ban 
which he was finally able to implement on 11 countries, 11 high-risk countries, expired last week, uh, one week ago today. And uh, so we are again bringing in refugees from these high-risk countries like Somalia and Sudan and uh, Iraq and uh, Yemen and Iran. And, and, and some high-risk countries weren't even on the list to begin with, like Afghanistan. So uh, the, the, the big dog on that list is Somalia. We've had the worst record of all countries for assimilation. Uh, unfortunately has come from migrants from Somalia. And I recently published a story on my website titled 25 Reasons to End Refugee Resettlement from Somalia Now. And uh, it literally took me about an hour, hour and a half, to come up with more than 25 uh, instances of crime, terrorism, fraud, violent crime, rape, uh, the gamut uh, by re- Somali refugees just in the last three or four years, not even four years, the last two or three years. Uh, and so it is just a horrific record uh, from Somalia. So they will be able to continue coming now that the refugee ban has expired. Uh, they will come at a much slower rate, continue to come at a slower rate, Uh President Trump set the annual cap for this year at 45,000 refugees. At the rate they're coming in, I would be surprised if we see 20,000. And I'm hoping less than half of them will be from these uh, Sharia-compliant countries that hate us. Uh, But the problem, Doug, even though I give Trump high marks for cutting down the numbers, if we're really going to make any lasting impact if Trump is going to make any lasting impact in his four or eight year uh, tenure and I hope it will be eight uh, then he really needs to attack this problem in a far more comprehensive way than just reducing the numbers we, we, we really need to be changing some laws uh, and we need to start with the Refugee Act of 1980 which allows these nine resettlement agencies Six of them are affiliated with religious organizations uh, to get paid by the head for every single refugee they bring into our country. And then we see these same nine on Capitol Hill lobbying Congress uh, for more refugees every year. Well, duh, I wonder why they want more. It's more money coming into their coffers the more refugees that the government allows them to to resettle every year. And we also see these same nine uh, uh, NGOs lobbying at the state and local level, uh, telling communities that refugees are good for your community. You'll see your your community will prosper economically. It will be more diverse and stronger. You know, diversity is our strength, right? That's what Hillary, Hillary Clinton told us. Uh, even though every place, every city where we see large numbers of refugees brought in, we see nothing but but crime, divisions, and 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 breakdown in social cohesion, uh, all sorts of uh, you know opposite scenarios of these rosy uh, pictures that they paint for us. Or, or go ahead, you because you, I man, I got like a thousand questions for you. Go ahead, Joe. You're going to say I, something. I just wanted to to reiterate, uh, Leo, what you pointed out about the amount of money that some of these organizations make, and when you see the Pope 
you know, uh, talking about immigration and immigration policy in the U.S. and how we need amnesty. And you look at what the Catholic Charities Organization takes in. I mean, this is, we're talking about billion dollars of industry here, of business every year that these companies make from immigration. And I don't think a lot of people understand how that really works because I know when I started hearing about that, I didn't understand. You know, who pays for, uh, who pays these organizations money and why are they paid this much money? How come it's such a racket? That, that was kind of one of my questions. Yeah. And, and we can get into the details of that, but it is amazing that, uh, these people are allowed to profit and not only profit, but to turn around and use that money to influence the lawmakers into, uh, you know, trying to make the decisions based on that influence of money. And it, it's such a broken system. Uh, where, how do you see this, this playing under the Trump administration, Leo? Because you have Trump who has put out a compromise, and, and we all heard in the State of the Union the, the four tiers or the four parts of his plan uh, from the uh, one point pathway to citizenship to 1.8, ending of the chain migration except for immediate family members, ending of the visa lottery system and funding for the border wall. We hear, we're hearing in the news that, you know, basically – Immigration is one of the only things on the table in Congress this week. How's this going to play out? You know, I, I was every time it seems like I'm ready to give Trump some credit for doing something. You know, there's always a new caveat thrown into the mix. Uh, I was thinking maybe you know that this big deal that fell through a couple of weeks ago. Uh, right after State of the Union that, that this would be the end of it. He offered the Democrats everything they wanted and more as far as amnesty for the DACA children. 1.8 million, uh, of them would qualify. Uh, that was more than double the original, uh, proposal of 800,000. Uh, they didn't take it. And that just showed that the Democrats really didn't care about these DACA children. What they're really interested in is in obstructing everything Trump tries to do, even even amazingly if it's something that they wanted him to do or said they wanted him to do, all because they won't apply any, appropriate any funding for the wall. They don't want to end chain migration, uh, and they don't want to end the diversity lottery visa, which, as you know, has allowed terrorists into our country uh, the uh, the guy who tried to uh, that ran his truck through the uh, uh, bike path in New York a couple of months ago from Uzbekistan came here on that diversity visa lottery so we have known terrorists who are coming in under this program and we can't get the Democrats to agree to end it. So it really is amazing. Uh, so I thought maybe we were in the clear there. Trump maybe I thought just offered them this big deal to expose, to expose them, you know, is not really being in favor of these DACA children so much as just being obstructionist. Well now it's being, as you said, talked about again this week and lo and behold, Senator Tom Cotton Republican from uh, Missouri, a very conservative young man, uh, he is now backing this same uh, uh, amnesty program for 1. million, 1.8 million illegals, and uh, being very vague on what he even wants in return. It's just talking about border security and stuff. So, and and uh, Charles Grassley, I'm told, is on board with this plan as well, and. Uh, 
it really is a little bit deflating. Alipac, Americans for Legal Immigration, which is one of the uh, major lobbies on behalf uh, against illegal immigration, came out today and said, you know, we're pulling our endorsement of Senator Cotton and Grassley. So uh, it's like you just when you think you figure out what might be going on in Washington, we get a new uh, a, a new stab in the back from some unlikely sources. Unlikely indeed. It's rather surprising. Our guest is Leo Homan. He's the author of Stealth Invasion. It's about 300 pages long, 304 pages. I gotta tell you, it is the, the, the most comprehensive book about Muslim conquest through immigration, resettlement, jihad. It's a must read. Go to Amazon.com or Amazon and, and get a copy of Stealth Invasion. Get the hard copy. I gotta tell you, it's a great book. Uh, Leo, let me ask, uh, Oh man, again, I got so many questions here. Fire away. Oh, you know, <laughs> it's just in what order? Um, because I don't want to make a word salad, uh, like I usually do. I, okay. Let's go with what's, what's President Donald Trump again is Joe mentioned, as you mentioned, part of the platform here of controlling this illegal immigration, uh, or illegal alien invasion. I guess my first question is, is how, how is it possible for a federal judge to block his executive order? How is that even possible? Well, you know, yeah, that's a very good question. I've asked that myself, and I haven't been able to get a good answer, uh, Doug. But a lot of people, myself included, believe that Trump made a mistake when he chose to acknowledge and abide by those decisions that were put forth by, you know, the Hawaii District federal court, the Washington State uh, District Court, remember there was a one judge, right. a, a one judge court, you know, a single district court, that's the lowest level of federal court, judge is able to block an entire uh, White House policy on immigration, and, and, and immigration is something that has constitutionally and historically always been uh, you know, under the purview of, uh, of, of Congress and the White House. Uh, since when do courts get the right to, uh, set policy on immigration? Now these policy, these court blockages were all overturned when they got to the Supreme Court, but by that point it was sort of moot because the travel ban, which the left always called a travel ban, right. was really just a temporary, it was a temporary moratorium uh, three months in length, 90 days, uh, I think another one was 60 days. It was just to try to get a handle on the vetting process, uh, of these, uh, refugees coming in from these dangerous places. It was never a permanent ban. Uh, some people, myself included, would have been jumping for joy if we, if Trump had called for a permanent ban Amen. from some of the, some of these yeah. countries, you know? Uh, but he was only calling for a temporary moratorium so he could, quote, figure out what the hell was going on, as he said on, on the campaign stump, uh, from these terrorist hotbeds that were, uh, you know, somehow getting people into our country. Uh, so it was completely, uh, completely distorted by the media in, co- in cahoots with these rogue judges. And, uh, you know, finally got to the Supreme Court and it was overturned, so, you know, it just, it's, I think we can look forward to more of this though, uh, on these hot button issues, which the, the issues I really, uh, I see that the left is not willing to, uh, 
that they're willing to really go to war on to to do anything legal or illegal to stall or or obstruct Trump, you know, is, is Muslim Im- immigration period, but especially Islamic immigration, and that is because uh, the left has is has made an alliance with Islam uh, against this country. Uh, it's it's really globalist politicians. Especially, you know, democratic globalist politicians are aligned with Islam, uh, for votes if you're the Democratic Party. You know, 70% of Islamic, uh, immigrants vote Democratic. And so, uh, from the Islamic point of view, all we have to do is turn to the explanatory memorandum, which was seized by the FBI, uh, from a Virginia uh, a house, a Muslim Brotherhood operative house in Virginia in 2004 to find out what their plan is. They say that they want to infiltrate and take down from within uh, the Western civilization in North America. And to do that, they said they will uh, work with the brothers, and they will also. They said they will use the hand of the believers and the unbelievers to accomplish this infiltration meaning ie we will work with like-minded organiz- like-minded non-muslim organizations it, that would it, that right. would include the democratic party it would include these leftist organizations i just i mentioned earlier the nine resettlement agencies uh all of these liberal ngos now, 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 you go over this in your book in detail, which, again, Stealth Invasion is the name of the book. Um, uh, it, it, tremendous detail. I, I, I love that aspect of the book. Um, uh, so they find partnership with the resettlement agencies, but but how, and I understand that the document, of course, you're talking from the Holy Land Foundation uh, trial. Uh, am I correct in, in that? The, uh, or the, it, that document was presented, yes, at okay. the Holy Land Foundation trial in 2008. Uh, okay, so but but how is it possible that 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 that, that the uh, Catholic organizations, for example, some of the Christian organizations, are, are just being run roughshod by the by the by the very people who want to destroy them in, in in cases like this? Outside of the political apparatus, you've got the religious institutions, as you mentioned. How is that even? How does that even make sense? I think it is the uh, certain certain uh, religious organizations, Doug, that have always had a very uh, leftist, uh, Marxist sort of undertone to them. You know, there's certain elements within the Catholic Church, the Jesuits in particular, that have had this outlook, uh, this geopolitical outlook for years, you know, of liberation theology. We need to liberate the oppressed. We need to redistribute the wealth. Uh, we, we're focused on uh, social justice. Uh, it's not really about preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's about social justice and uh, social engineering. And as they 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 see it is uh, you know uh, a, a way to redistribute the wealth by bringing the poor people in the third world here to the West. Uh, doesn't matter if their cultures you know don't really. Uh, mesh very well with ours and if they don't uh, have a good record of assimilating or trying to become good Americans, it doesn't matter. We're helping them out by bringing them out of the third world hell holes where they live and into the West uh, and then at the same time we these globalists say that we you know we need to outsource a lot of our better paying jobs here in the West to the third world 
so that the ones who we aren't able to take into our societies will have better jobs uh, there in the third world. Of course, this all hurts the American middle class because we're the ones who pay for it. We pay for it with lost job opportunities. We pay for it with higher taxes. Uh, and this is, you know, an, a, a very bad scenario for uh, us. And the secret was starting to get out with a candidate like Trump because he was explaining these things. And that's why we saw, you know, white working class Democrats, uh, people who hadn't voted Republican in decades, go to the polls and vote for Trump in, to, in, in November 2016 because they saw something in him that they hadn't seen in any other candidate, Republican or Democrat. And I think that's the thing, the key here, Doug. Trump is not a Republican. Trump is not a conservative. Trump is an anti-globalist. And that is what uh, made him popular among those uh, across the board with those American white working class people who, as he called them, the forgotten, the ones who just were bearing the brunt of these globalist policies for decades, really since the you know late seventies, early eighties. Right, and, and as you mentioned, the uh, uh, and I, I want to revisit. I want to revisit this: the Refugee uh, uh, Act of nineteen eighty. Uh, that plays into this as well. Uh, our guest is Leo Homan. That's Leo Homan. Dot com. That's H-O-H-M-A-N-N, leohoman.com. He's the author of Stealth Invasion. And that is a phenomenal book. It is on Amazon. His website, of course, is leohoman.com. And some interesting articles there we're going to get into, including one. Uh, i got to show you this. I, I, get to know your Muslim neighbor. I, I just want to show This is what I was referencing before you came on, uh, Leo. Yeah. I was, I was talking about, uh, about this on, uh, your, your Twitter feed. My goodness. You gotta be kidding me. But, uh, before This has you, been uh, going on, Doug, for years. Get to know your Muslim neighbor in public libraries, folks. Is this the type of thing that it's going on in public libraries and in public schools? Uh, I've been having so many stories like this the last couple weeks. Uh, this get to know your Muslim neighbor was at this program in particular was at the Centerline Public Library, uh, right outside of Warren, Michigan. Centerline is a small town of 8,000 people. And, uh, you know, they bring in, uh, Muslim women in hijabs and they have some Middle Eastern food that they share with the folks and they talk about the wonders of Islamic art and how, uh, Islam has a grand history in America dating back to the very beginning of our founding. Mm-hmm. Uh, a bunch of lies and half-truths and, of course, omissions. Omissions about the death and destruction left in the wake of Islam wherever it has dominated uh, throughout history. And so it, it, it's called, uh, it's what they call dawah. Dawah is the Islamic proselytizing or outreach programs. And it's all about the uh, soft sell and uh you know, there's a video embedded in the article on my website. Everyone should watch. I mean, it really is sad because it's a video compilation put out by the Muslim American Society, which is sponsors these Meet Your Muslim Neighbor events. And they have a video compilation of these events. There it is, uh, that have been held over the last several years. This has been going on, as I said, for years. And you can just watch it and see the deception. Uh, and how the American women and men attending this event 
really are gullible and falling for this stuff. You know, it shows a middle-aged uh, woman trying on a hijab and smiling, and oh, isn't this fantastic? You know, not knowing that the hijab is the symbol of female oppression throughout the Middle East. Uh, and here they are celebrating it as a fashion statement. It's going on at universities as well. They've been having hijab days at universities for the last couple of years, you know, promoting it as high fashion as opposed to oppression. Uh, you're absolutely right. And if we can, uh, I want to go back to what we saw at the State of the Union with Nancy Pelosi and many on the left as uh, Trump, you know, he introduced a number of uh, heroes, American heroes, and other heroes as well as victims of uh, the gang violence by MS-13, the parents. And throughout the whole State of the Union, the uh, Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats never stood, never clapped, even when he, uh, you know, talked about compromises he would make, and especially on immigration. Now, fast forward to uh, just last week, and Nancy Pelosi stands on the House floor for eight-plus hours in uh, defense I think it was of just over illegal, seven hours and, and four inch stilettos, but I digress. Go in ahead. defense of, of you know, uh, amnesty for all and uh, illegal immigration, even misquoting Bible verses to apply them to uh, I- illegal immigrants in this country. This There has to be something more here than this is how the left feels. This is how Nancy Pelosi feels, and she wants to have compassion for the illegal immigrants, so this is why she's doing it. As you pointed out, the money that is involved in this, uh, behind, uh, you know, under the table and behind the scenes is, is astronomical. And I don't know if she's getting any of that. Votes is another reason. But why, is it because, uh, just the latest example as we see with the media coverage of North Korea, that the left is just looking to, no matter what it is Trump's trying to do, they're going to oppose it, even if it means, uh, denying their own beliefs and, and the things that they argue for on a regular basis? Or is there something else going on here? Well, did you hear the statement she made during that seven-plus-hour uh, marathon session? She said, she, she said that she was so proud of her yes. grandson because he decided that he didn't want to be white anymore. Yeah, uh, Michael Savage played a, a on, his, yeah. on his last show played a, a whole show about this, replaying this clip over and over. And she talked about her grandson's birthday where he said he made his birthday wish. Basically, he didn't want to be white. He wanted to be Hispanic. It was his birthday, correct. And she said she was so proud of him that it brought tears to her eyes. Oh, my goodness. It's this self-hatred, this this hatred of America and our background, uh, apologizing for it. We saw Obama, member apologizing wherever he went around the world for America. Uh, it's just the opposite of what we see with a candidate or a president like uh, Donald Trump. And so they want to be, you know, Donald Trump is the anti-globalist. So they are just, you know, doubling down on their globalism. What's really going on, you asked me what I thought maybe is the real thing. The, the Democratic Party has given up on American citizens, especially those who are not, uh, not minorities. And I have nothing against minorities. But a president, a presidential candidate, regard, regardless of what party he represents, uh, or has tied to his or her name, should represent all Americans. Black, white, 
Christian, non-Christian. Uh, but the Democratic Party, uh, Joe, has written off like half of America, white people. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> and so, uh, the only way that they can, and, and now that I don't mean all white people. If you're liberal, you know, academic, highly educated, work for Amazon or Microsoft, you know, there's a lot of commonalities, <laughs> a lot of commonalities shared there. But, but if you know, you know, if you work in a factory and you're not, you know, uh, you don't have a master's degree and, uh, you're hardworking, you, you respect the flag, uh, these are the type of people that the Democratic Party has abandoned. And so they know they can, cannot get elected anymore, uh, by having abandoned, you know, this huge chunk of the American electorate. So the only way they can make up for that is to bring in all of these migrants, uh, third world migrants. Uh, from the Muslim world, from the, uh, from, uh, Central America, uh, and the poorer the better, the least skilled the, 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 the better, uh, it doesn't matter if they can't speak English and have no job skills, uh, bring them in, get them registered to vote, and, uh, and, and watch the votes roll in at the same time we bash the American citizen, the working class American citizen. And, you know, it's time a lot of, uh, black people wise up to this as well. Because the, uh, black population is not being represented by these policies either. Uh, these migrants are coming in and, and taking jobs held by a lot of, uh, a lot of well-paying jobs held by African Americans. And uh, it's really sad to see that. And uh, that's why you see a growing number of African Americans saying, hey, maybe Trump wasn't as bad as they told us he would be. And, uh, you know, it's that's something to watch in the next election, uh, that black vote for President Trump. Because I'm telling you, there's nobody hurt worse in this country uh, than black Americans by Democratic liberal policies. Yeah, you're 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 correct in that, and uh, I wonder how many is that beginning to sink in? Do you think that, or or will that sink in in time where Black Americans are being hurt? Uh, they're they're the suffering the most from this. Will anyone ever comprehend that, or, or is that just kind of futile to to think that uh, that'll uh, that'll become reality? You know, the problem is black leadership. There you go. Uh, you know, in the, whether it's the hip hop industry, the black pastors, the black politicians, uh, they all tend to be liberal. Uh, even, you know, black sports figures, Charles Barkley, you know, I mean, all the, uh, all the heroes of the black community seem to be 100% solidly, uh, anti-Trump, pro-Democrat, but it seems like it's a slow process, answer to your question, but it does seem like it's moving in the right direction with the rank and file African American population. I, I think so. they are starting to wise up slowly okay. though. All right. Now, now you mentioned because I, I haven't been keeping track of this, you mentioned that the the moratorium on travel that expired, correct? The uh executive order? Correct. Okay. It expired a week ago. Okay. What's the deal? Are we done? Did, did we did we fully satisfy the vetting process? Did we get it down? Did we did we get it right in that time period? Or? Good question. Uh, yeah, Trump has uh, implemented what he calls extreme vetting, and uh, he is going to look at more sources than than we've looked at in the past when it comes to vetting. 
Uh, we're going to look at, for instance, the refugee's social media footprint. Uh, has he put things on Facebook or Twitter or YouTube uh, that, uh, you know, are disparaging towards America or American interests? Uh, does they're going to follow up on some of the uh, you know the refugees' family lineage and look at what they can find there? Uh, they're going to vet uh, vet them at a younger age, I believe. Under under uh, Obama, if you were 14 or younger, they didn't even look at any anything. Your you know period, let alone your Facebook posts. Um, there's a lot of things we can do that we haven't been doing, and Trump's going to start doing them. Uh, that's the good news. The bad news is it's impossible to vet many of these refugees. Uh, many of them don't have social media accounts, you know, coming from Somalia or uh, Sudan. Uh, you know, we don't have good law enforcement records uh, or data in those countries. Uh, Syria is, was another example. You know, these are broken, broken countries. Uh, we can't just call, you know, the Damascus Police Department and say, give me your records on so and so who's at a refugee camp and we want to, we're considering bringing him here to America. You know, or, or call Mogadishu Department of Police. You know, it doesn't work that way. These are broken, Countries, many of them embroiled for years in civil war. Uh, there is no data on many people. So we are left with the personal testimony and under, uh, Obama's top immigration official, Leon Rodriguez, a couple years ago, under congressional testimony, he admitted that there were Syrian refugees coming here based solely on their personal testimony, meaning what they said in the interviews with the American officials, if you can believe that. All we did was believe their story and said, come on in. And that was this rigorous vetting process that Mr. Rodriguez and the others were bragging about. But when Jeff Sessions, who was a senator at the time, grilled Mr. Rodriguez on this issue, he finally admitted, yes, there are many, there are plenty that we don't have any data to vet them against. So uh, that's a big problem. The other issue is, uh, Doug, how do you vet a two-year-old or a four-year-old or a six-year-old when uh, against future radicalization? A lot of these <laughs> refugees come here as little kids, and they go and they attend American schools, and, uh, you know, by all by all appearances, they look like uh, well-assimilated Muslim Americans. But then at some point, usually when they hit their mid-20s, uh, you know, they want to get back in touch with their roots, and they start uh, attending mosques more frequently. They start uh, uh, growing out their beard and uh, reading the Quran more religiously. And their friends say, hmm, we don't really know what happened to this guy. It's not the same uh, Mohammed uh, Abdul or whatever that we used to know and uh, that we knew from high school. And we find out that, you know, like Mohammed Abdul Aziz, the guy who did the Chattanooga shooting, uh, killed five U.S. servicemen back in the summer of 2015. He came here as a six-year-old, and he was popular, member of his 
high school wrestling team in Chattanooga. He graduated, went to college with honors, uh, got himself an electrical engineering degree. Uh, but you know, it's, 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 uh, uneducated, it's, it's lack of education and lack of jobs that causes terrorism, right? Of course, yes, yes. That, that's it. That's it. Right. Yeah. Remember M- Marie Harp? She was Obama's spokes, uh, deputy spokeswoman yeah. for the State Department. She said it, we, if we could just bring more jobs to the Middle East, we wouldn't have all this terrorism. Uh, <laughs> well, time after time, when you actually take a look at the terrorists, they're highly educated. They had every opportunity available to them, like this Mr. Abdulaziz. And uh, it was only after he graduated from the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga and got him that nice little degree that he got, quote-unquote, radical uh, and decided to commit jihad. And uh, and it's, it's like this time and again you look at these jihadists. They're not stupid people. They're not lacking opportunities. Uh, they have every opportunity as a minority in this country, uh, many opportunities that you and I wouldn't have. Sure. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's just a cop-out and, and a reluctance to face the truth. But, but, but Leo, don't forget, don't forget, uh, they actually settled this country. They, they, they built this country. I mean, look, look at all the Islamic, um, or, or the, um, the Arab slash Islamic, uh, look at everything they've done for this country. Let's list their accomplishments. Okay. Uh, huh. What did the founding fathers call them? Mohammedans? Yeah. Well, Mohammedans. Yeah. I, I've read a lot of the uh, and diaries and uh, biographies and of whatnot of the founding fathers, and they had very interesting views about yes. Islam, and it wasn't even called Islam then. Uh, well, right. yeah, but, but, this is ridiculous. And, and by the way, Leo Homan is our guest. His book, Stealth Invasion. Folks, you've got to read this book. It, it, it will tell you everything you want to know about the Muslim conquest through immigration and resettlement. Uh, it'll keep you awake at night, in my view. It, it, it'll disturb you, but it's true. And it really, it really outlines the problem. Um, and you've done a great job on this book, by the way. And I, I Thank just, you. I tried to make it an all, all-encompassing book that is not just about terrorism. There's plenty of books about terrorism that people can read, Islamic terrorism. But uh, this book, uh, while it does uh, take take a lot of uh, information about terrorism and incorporate it in there, uh, you know, what motivates the terrorist, as we were just talking about a minute ago, and stuff like that. It, it also focuses on civilization jihad, which is this, uh, this other side of Islam, which we were talking about at the top of the show with the meet your Muslim neighbor programs, you know, the soft cell part of Islam, which they call dawah, the proselytizing, the outreach, the lies, the taqiyah, the half-truths, uh, to, tor- to sort of um, implant the Islamic principles into the minds of the American people. Uh, but we'll save that jihad part for later, and we won't tell people the true meaning of jihad. I mean, there's another uh, article on my website uh, from a couple of weeks ago, uh, Doug and Joe, that you wouldn't believe <clears throat> the FBI is involved in this dawah as well. Our own FBI. They've hired, they've got this program called the Bridges Program, and Bridges is an acronym uh, about uh, 
cultural outreach to minorities, sensitive, being more sensitive to uh, immigrant communities, something. It's I don't remember the exact acronym. But the FBI has these meetings. They're called Bridges, and they've hired a Muslim woman in the Detroit area. They do this all over. But in Detroit, they hired a woman named Bushra Alawi. She's a young, attractive, there she is, uh, Muslim woman who served in the Army National Guard. And after she got out of the Guard, the FBI hired her to go around and hold training uh, meetings for law enforcement, state and local. And she had a meeting uh, that's described in this article. We had an infiltrator at that meeting uh, who reported to us that she was telling the law enforcement officers there that uh, Allah Akbar is nothing to be concerned about. When you hear, you know, it's got a bad rap. We, we, we hear that phrase and we automatically think of terrorism, but we shouldn't. The average Muslim says Allah Akbar 85 times a day. Uh, and jihad... My gosh, jihad is just a personal internal struggle, she said. Uh, my jihad, uh, she said, is not eating too much cheesecake. Hmm. I, I kid you not. And this is what we're teaching our law enforcement officers. You know, that's a half truth. There, there's two jihads, the greater jihad and the lesser jihad. And, uh, one is violent. And the other is this uh, internal personal struggle. But she only told them about the internal personal struggle part. Didn't tell them about the history, uh, the the long uh, documented history of violent jihad, one after another for hundreds and hundreds of years since the very uh, inception of the religion under Muhammad. I mean, my goodness, Muhammad personally beheaded between six and nine hundred Jewish men and boys at the Battle of the Trench in 621 A.D. I mean, this is crazy. Um, but yeah. this is what our law enforcement people are being taught, and and our students are being taught it, and our people at the public libraries are being taught it. It's not the truth. Well, there's been a huge push over the last 20 years, uh, and Robert Mueller has been a part of this, but there's been a huge push through CARE and other Islamic organizations to... Uh, purge Islam, any negative talk about Islam, whether it's truth or not, from the public view. And I have an old Judicial Watch piece here from June 3rd, 2013, citing that the uh, hundreds of memos, hundreds of pages from the FBI memos and other documents released reveal that Robert Mueller purged the curriculum of the training material at the FBI, which was offensive to Muslims. In other words, it was content out there that uh, would help investigators further identify uh, traits of Islamic terrorism. And I heard Representative Jim Jordan complaining on this on, on Hannity a few weeks ago, which had me go look into this a little bit more. And sure enough, there are countless examples, and it's not just, uh, it, it was not just Mueller, it's people all across the uh, federal government. And Obama had a big hand in this too. Um, and we've interviewed a number of people who talked about this, from uh, files in, in the DHS and other organiz- government organizations were, were wiped clean and years long investigations were erased and the FBI's own and I'm sure other law enforcement officials or agencies training materials were uh, removed any references to you know radicalization of uh, of Islam or radicalization and other Islamic uh, terms that are used and many people believe that it left the FBI kind of high and dry and then we see the other side of that where the FBI 
you know, basically uh, infiltrates some kind of organizations or creates them and then, you know, leads people to uh, think they're going to be committing terror attacks by giving them the logistics and the, uh, you know, what they think is the explosives and whatnot. And then the people are following their directions and we see stories and headlines that say, you know, FBI foils terror plot and on and on and on. But the damage that has been done by Robert Mueller alone, let alone all the other countless examples of this happening across our country, this has done so much damage that is unseen, really. We don't know the extent of it. But how come we're not allowed to criticize a belief system that its goal is to co- kill and conquer all who don't believe in it? I don't get yeah, that. Yeah, isn't that ironic, Joe, that the, the religion that is has the record of being the most violent in the history of the world and currently commits over 95% of all the world's terrorism is the same religion that we're not allowed to criticize publicly. Uh, it all comes down, I have traced, this could be a whole other show, guys, uh, because I've done the research on this, and it goes back to the OIC in 1999. It goes that far back. The OIC is the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. And it is the largest voting bloc at the UN, comprised of 57 Muslim majority countries. Uh, and they began this concept, uh, in, about defamation of religion. In other words, uh, in your speech, you could defame not just individual Muslims, you could de- defame an entire religion. And uh, this was something, a uh, sort of novel concept at the time, but uh, it ended up getting uh, pushed through in 2011 in the Res- Human Rights Resolution 1618 at the UN. Does that ring a bell? Remember that? Uh, hmm. This was this is the resolution that the UN was trying to pass be- through the, the OIC was trying to get it passed through the UN since the 9/11 attacks. Because they felt like Muslims were being singled out, uh, you know, criticized, whatnot, uh, unfairly, you know, because of this big terrorist attack. And, uh, and, in the West, and predominantly, they didn't like what they saw happening in the West with all this criticism of Islam and the war on terror and all that. You know, it's the same thing, uh, that you saw happening in, with the law enforcement and the purging of, of the, uh, training manuals that Joe was talking about. Right. Uh, well, it, it finally got past this resolution 1618 by the UN in 2011 with the help of who? Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton. <laughs> uh, the UN, it, it kept getting vetoed by the United States or wouldn't get passed because of United States opposition, uh, since, you know, at least 2003 or 4 and 5, they tried all these years. Finally, 2011, Hillary Clinton comes along and they get it passed. And after it was passed, they started the Istanbul process, which is the implementation program for Human Rights Resolution 1618, in which they encourage all the nations of the world to pass laws criminalizing speech that is critical of Islam. (laughs) And uh, that's why you see these uh, laws passed since 2011 in Germany, uh, the the UK... Uh, Switzerland, Canada, 
they all have laws now that that make it criminal to post on Facebook or other public forum uh, speech that is critical of not only Muslims but Islam in general. And so uh, the United States under Obama was was itching to do this. And they tried, they, they tried throwing out some fleeces, some test cases. One of them was under, uh, after, if you recall, the San Bernardino terrorist attack. Uh, Attorney General Loretta Lynch, if you recall, made this curious statement. Uh, she said that her office would aggressively prosecute any, um, any citizen whose speech, quote, edged towards violence. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and it was also done by Andrew Luger, the U.S. attorney in Minnesota, when they were had this high-profile trial about six uh, uh, Somali Muslim guys who were trying to, remember, leave the country and go join right. ISIS. He put out a similar warning like that. U.S. attorney for Idaho, Wendy Olson, put out a warning during that uh, trial of the two, the three boys, remember, who were accused of sexually assaulting the five-year-old oh, girl. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. I actually broke that story, and uh, and after it came out, I ran with it, and a bunch of other conservative websites ran with it. She had to walk back her comments, just like Andrew Luger and Loretta Lynch had to walk back their comments. Uh, and what happened, if it was just us conservatives who criticized her, nothing would have happened. But what happened was, even some of the liberal law f- professors, one in particular at UCLA, published an op-ed criticizing... Uh, I believe it was Loretta Lynch and, and a similar case criticizing, uh, I don't remember if it was the same guy, but it was another law professor criticized Wendy Olson in Idaho when they made these comments. And so when they get, they threw out a test, this is how the Democrat, the, the radical left works. If, if, if one of their own comes at them in the publicly in the media, you know, a left wing lawyer at UCLA and criticizes it as unconstitutional, they'll walk it back. And that's what happened. Uh, but but you can see how they were trying to go the same route as Germany, Sweden, the UK, Canada, and all these other countries, all based on Hillary Clinton's work at the UN. You know, we um, the UN has, has really lost the relevancy, especially in the American public's eye, over the, the last decade, but especially over the last three, four years. And under this Trump administration, when we see the rhetoric... Uh, on the Israeli vote, the number of anti-Israeli resolutions that are put forward, and we even looked at the Trump looked at the funding and threatened to take some of that away. But they are uh, still implementing their you know Agenda 2020, Agenda 2030, mm-hmm. part of the Agenda 21, and part of this is this forced migration that we've been talking about during the show. And if we can, uh, I want to talk about Europe for a little bit because we see some pushback finally happening. Yeah, we only got about three minutes left, oh, if you can believe happen. it. So we see some pushback happening in places uh, like Germany, where you had uh, Merkel for years, uh, you know, even going higher than the quotas that the EU set, bringing in millions of refugees, and it's been destroying their society uh, from mass sexual assaults to uh, increase in all-around violence. Uh, we won't go into all that right now, but we're starting to see some pushback from the citizens. Also, Poland and and some other countries in Europe refuse to meet the quotas imposed by the EU. On their immigration, trying to uh, you know keep the 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 craziness out of their country. Do you think Germany will? Is the damage done in Europe, in most of Europe? 
Western Europe, yes. I think it's too late. Uh, at best, they can help slow down their own demise. And I think that's what they're trying to do uh, now. But, uh, you know, who knows when it will get ramped up again. Uh, you know, and Germany in particular, I really have, I know we're just about out of time, but I have some really uh, strange uh, concerns about the actings there of Merkel and that government. Uh, I'm almost wondering if that government isn't looking to ride Islam to uh, perhaps a return to world power status, superpower status. Uh, their own their own uh, civilization is in decline. European women's don't ha- women don't have babies anymore. Uh, the average European woman has uh, one ba- one child. You know, the the average is like 1.4 per woman. The birth the uh, fertility rate. So they know that their civilization is in decline. They're they're an aging dying population. What better way to reverse that if you're a country like Germany than to embrace Islam? Uh, they're the young ones. They're the growing population. They're the ones who have all the vitality right now in Europe. And so I think there really is uh, some hard questions for that For that, that those citizens need to be asking their government. And, uh, you know, it's all in the demographics, guys. It's all in the demographics. You're, you're, they, man, you are so right right on the money. Europe is is a is a very interesting case, and you do point this out very well in your book Stealth Invasion. Uh, really about you know from the Middle East and North Africa, Africa, middle and Middle East to Europe and United States and Canada. Very very well written Stealth Invasion, a Muslim conquest through uh, uh, through immigration and resettlement jihad, folks. Uh, Amazon. Go ahead. If I can, just on Leo, what you said about the reproductive rates. For whatever reason, this is not ever talked about or dealt with with when we get into the immigration. Uh, as you mentioned, the, the low birth rates in the Western world, uh, I think some of it is linked to uh, a sterilization campaign, you know, with the, the, the chemicals in the food, air, and water. But how come when we are being told, you know, we have to bring more people over here because Americans and other and Europeans aren't having enough kids. How come the abortion debate is never brought up? You know, when <laughs> millions of babies are are being uh, murdered in the wombs, how come that is never an issue uh, or looked upon as a negative on society? When that's the you know one of the excuses for why they continue to to say we need more immigrants here. I think it all fits together. I, I really do. I mean, uh, it, it's brought out. I talk about this in my book. How they preach, uh, for years, they've been telling, you know, uh, high school and university women that it's bad to have more than two children. This has been going on since what? The mid to late sixties? Yep. Uh, you know, so, uh, now they, the, the chickens have come home to roost. Or the lack of chickens, I guess, have come home to roost. And so, uh, the answer is mass migration. And the UN even put out a document in 2000 on what they call unapologetically replacement migration. Wow. Yeah, we can talk about that Man, sometime. Please come back. You will come back, I hope. Uh, on our show. Okay. Leo Homan, fantastic as always. LeoHoman.com. Our link is going to be in the program description. If you're watching this, of course, on the VIA archive, uh, it'll be right there in the description box or uh, at uh, yeah, Fair enough. I, I got distracted <laughs> by Eric the Tech there. Sorry about that. Thanks, Leo. It was a great, Thank great interview. Thank you so much. All right, man. Yes. All right. Take care. We will be right back. Don't go anywhere.
final hour on this Monday edition of the Hagman Report. We have Peter Chowka coming up. This will be week number two of his uh, Monday installments that we're going to be starting to do every Monday in the third hour. Between the lines. That's what it's called? Between the lines? Not outside the lines or inside? Between the lines. Okay. No, but Peter is a great author and journalist. He has a section on our website on the right-hand side under the Watch Now banner called Peter Chowka. And there you can find his latest articles that he posts for Hagman Report, uh, as he does uh, a number of articles each week. He also writes for American Thinker and has done uh, an extensive amount of work with them. And it's uh, he's one of our favorite people. We get tons of email feedback when he comes on, and people really uh, like having him as a guest. So we're going to bring him on to talk about a number of issues and things that are ongoing, both them, things that are on our mind and things that Peter wants to talk about. Um, as I was saying before we brought Leo Holman on, uh, I have not posted this to the website yet, but I'm going to. Dear America, your media absolutely hates you. And I know Peter is big, like me, on analyzing the media and the media reactions that we have seen coming out, especially about and, and pertaining to Donald Trump. And this article that I, I just referenced uh, goes on to talk about how the American media illustrates time and time again their utter hatred for the nation and the people in those uh, in this nation. And one thing that's really interesting about this is when the media attacks Donald Trump and attacks everything he does, even if it lines them up with North Korea and on the side of Kim Jong-un, it's not... See, Trump is just a representation of what they hate. He is just the face of what they really hate. And that, for for one, is uh, our Lord and Savior. And anybody who is first a Christian, but also a conservative. And Trump is the representation of that, of you know the Constitutional Republic of America, where... They want progress. They want a socialist utopia. Something like, I would imagine, a mixture between what Venezuela and North Korea looks like now. The media, as we said in the beginning of the show, has gone so far into propping up the minister of propaganda, the sister of Kim Jong-un, and belittling Trump and the Trump administration in the same story. Again, the North Korea, uh, the, the North Korean, the New York Times headline, uh, you know, Kim Jong-un's sister outshines Mike Pence at Olympics. But it is absolutely unbelievable. I guess not surprising. But where these people will go, it's unbelievable. You have to wonder, you almost wonder, if North Korea was paying uh, for this propaganda to be put out. And if you've ever seen North Korean state propaganda before, it, it's just it, one article I read, they talked about landing a man on the sun being the first country to ever do that. Can you imagine what they're doing with actual CNN and NBC News reports propping them up while putting down yeah, I believe the that. president of the United States? It's amazing. That. We have with us our guest, Peter Barry Chowka. Before we get to our, before we get to Peter, folks, if you haven't done so, go to healthmasters.com. That's healthmasters.com. Attention factor. Attention factor. This stuff is, is fantastic. Use Doug25 for this product only. I, I'm, I'm hoping I'm really hoping that that coupon code is still good. If not, just send them, uh, in the comment section, right, uh, you know, Doug said it was okay. 
How's that for forcing my forcing his hand? Attention Factor, healthmasters.com, healthmasters.com, attention factor. Fantastic product. You'll you'll see the difference, you'll feel the difference right away. That's attention factor at healthmasters.com. Let's bring Peter on. Go ahead. I interrupted you and you, while you're bringing Peter on. Well, in his new spot each Monday in the third hour, Peter, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Doug and Joe. It's great to be with you again. On short notice tonight, I'm sorry to hear that your originally scheduled guest was taken ill, and I hope he's doing okay. Yeah, well, you know what? It, it kind of just makes it makes it all uh, kind of streamlines things, actually. Uh, and we're, we're excited to have you. In fact, I got an email. I was going to send it to you. Uh, somebody from the UK saying, uh, asking when your when your uh, appearances were going to start, your regular appearances, and uh, saying that oh my goodness, they, they, people just love you. So uh, I'm glad you're here tonight. Thank you. That's great to hear. I originally thought uh, that we'd be kicking off the weekly uh, schedule of my appearances next Monday, the 19th, and I was in the process of preparing uh, an introduction or reintroduction to myself and what I hope to bring to the program on a weekly basis. And I'll leave most of that to next week because I haven't actually finished it yet. But um, there's some interesting stuff happening that I just wanted to start with Uh First off, uh, I, of course, listened to the first hour of the program tonight, and uh, I want to quote you, Doug, when you always say that you're not blowing smoke by uh, building up a guest. Well, I'm not blowing smoke by uh, trying to build you guys up because, uh, you know, I was a fan of your program for four years before we were ever in touch at all. So my bona fides go way back on this. But as I was listening to the first hour, I was thinking again, reminded how you do such an excellent and unique job every night in dissecting uh, the real news and in commenting on it in an unusually informed, well-informed, but down-to-earth way. And again, I'm always reminded of um, the backgrounds, the professional backgrounds that the two of you have as licensed private investigators. And I would estimate it's, what, about 40 years of collective experience between the two of you in that field? Yeah, about that, yep. Yep, 40 years. I, you know, I think that that really uh, uniquely qualifies the two of you as uh, expert investigators. I mean, you're used to dealing with the facts, the cold, hard facts that more often than not, I think we're probably presented in a court of law because of the uh, the kind of surveillance and investigative work that you did. So uh, it's not easy to fool the Hagmans, and I think you bring that professional awareness and that that grounding in facts to your work now, and uh, it it really shows. And and well, one I reason I was I, I got one reason I was I'm I, sorry go I, ahead. I, I appreciate that, and I just want to say this: I was I was actually um, uh, going through my papers and such. I, I when I was when I became licensed as an, as an investigator in in our state, they they don't do this anymore. Uh, here's I don't know if you can see this or not. Uh, this is actually the, the badge issued by the county. Uh, wow. So they don't do that anymore. And I get it, I get it. You know what my badge number is? And I really never really paid that much like attention. Four? No. Thirteen. Six, six, six. Oh. <laughs> yeah, six. Thanks, Peter. No, 13. So, uh, what, <laughs> all right. Make of it what you will. But, uh, anyway. So well, I hope, I hope they've retired that number in <laughs> honor of you, Doug. <laughs> well, I still have it, so I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but I, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. Uh, that is, that is very cool. Um, and, and how I wanted to relate it to what's been happening, uh, in my life in the last uh, five days, which actually, 
we'll we'll circle back to what we'll be talking about, I'm sure, during this hour. But uh, one reason I've been thinking about, um, well, you guys and what you do on the program and how good it is and really how traditional it is, because I've been uh, studying again or restudying the history of talk radio, which is something I grew up with. I, I came of age very, very early uh, in terms of political awareness and an interest in popular culture and the news and current events and media. And that's something I was going to talk a little bit about, but I won't take the time tonight. I'll do it maybe next week because I think it kind of uniquely positions me as somebody who's getting on in years, but I still have a very good memory, and I got into this at a very early age. But one thing that that touched me and made a very big difference in my life early on, starting uh, in really 1964, was talk radio, which was then in kind of its infancy, but it did exist then, political talk radio. It didn't start, as many people think, with uh, Rush Limbaugh in 1987 or 88. It started really in the late 40s through the 50s and started to take off in the 60s. And last Wednesday... Uh, I got a direct uh, Twitter message from uh, an old acquaintance and friend of mine, Celia Farber, who is a remarkable investigative journalist and one of the most courageous ones working in our era. And she asked me if, uh, on short notice, I could be a guest on her father, Barry Farber's radio program that same night, Wednesday night. Now, Barry Farber is a legendary, legendary pioneering talk show host, from um, start, he started his career on the air in 1960. He's 87 years young now and still going strong, doing programming and a one-hour show five nights a week. But um, I, he was very influential to me when I was growing up in the 1960s in the New York metropolitan area, which is where he broadcast from at that point. Later, he went on to have uh, a number of syndicated and network programs, but. In the mid-1960s, I was a great fan and a regular listener to the Barry Farber show. And in 2002, Talkers Magazine, which is the Bible of radio and television talk, came up with a list of the 25 greatest talk show hosts in the United States in the history of the medium. And they put Barry Farber in their top ten. He came in at number nine. So, of course, I... I welcomed the opportunity to do a program with him last Wednesday and it went so well that he's invited me back for a full hour tomorrow night and then to be a regular guest wow. on his program so okay let's I'm, let's promote that so to, uh, how can people tune in well I tweeted it uh, uh, my last appearance on how people could tune in and how they could find the podcasts his program actually is on at the same time as the Hagman report. So rather than saying I prefer one over the other, uh, people could access the podcast afterwards and uh, and and you know tune into that if they don't want to miss uh, the Hagman Report live tomorrow night. But it's it's not only a great honor, but uh, in in the in the process of my having some contact with Barry Farber off the air by telephone and email, I have proposed that I do kind of an oral history interview with him because, as I said, he is the last surviving, as far as I can tell, pioneer of the early talk radio medium uh, starting, in his case, in 1960. He actually started in the 1950s uh, working on a seminal program of the period 
Tex and Jinx with Tex McCrary and Jinx Falkenberg, who were very influential in the 1950s and even before in the work that they did. People can Google their names if they want to check them out. And also Google Barry Farber. His Wikipedia entry is absolutely amazing. When I reread it last week, my first thought was, how come there hasn't been a, a Hollywood film made about this man? I mean, his career is that incredible. I think he's in the Guinness Book of World, Book of World Records for uh, speaking uh, fluently the greatest number of languages. He's fluent in at least 25 foreign languages. And he wrote a book early on about how anyone could master any language. And that's an area that always amazes me because I have focused on the English language and it, it continues to be a challenge at times. And someone who has fluency in 25 languages, I can't even imagine it. But he's also, uh, of course, extremely erudite, a brilliant uh, conservative, and uh, helped to define the nation talk radio medium in the early 1960s. And he's also a southern gentleman and an incredible raconteur. And just connecting with him both on and off the air has, has just been the icing on the cake for my career at this point. And to circle it back around to uh, the Hagman report and, and Doug and Joe Hagman, uh, you guys remind me of, of these pioneering talk show hosts of the past because of your honesty, your directness, and the fact that off the air, uh, you're just like you are on the air. You're, you're the real deal. And that's how Barry Farber is. That's how some of the other, uh, I, I got to know and to work with several of the other pioneers, including four of them on this list of Talkers magazine. And, uh, the best of them were always like that. They were real people. They were really smart, very honest, very probing. And in most cases, very patriotic and on the conservative side of the ideological fence. So I think uh, you're in really good company. And uh, and it's why you, the two of you, really stand out today because of these qualities, some of which I've just noted here. Um, so, you know, I say again, bravo. But well, I'm, I'm just really jazzed and thrilled at this moment uh, to be... Uh, connected with Barry Farber and and I, I just can't wait to start the interview with him which what American Think wow. has said they're interested in in publishing but I'd like to do a longer oral history with him I mean you, you know when you're thinking of publishing an interview or an article with someone in a place like American Thinker it's got to be pretty short and Barry Farber I feel like I could talk to for days on end you know we were just uh, I was running a few names by him in a private conversation I had with him on the phone last week and he's probably one of the last people alive who uh, not only remembers who these folks are, whose names I was naming, but who actually knew them. So this is just like uh, a, you know a nugget of gold that's fallen to my lap, and I'm I'm just really jazzed at the moment. And I should note that Barry Farber failed Latin in the ninth grade. All right, so um, for all you people out there, uh, I, <laughs> that that statement there is ironic on a number of levels. Think about that, Latin. And an early underachiever who later, soon after that, in fact, uh, rose to the top of uh, as a linguist. And he was even working with uh, the United States government for a time in that capacity. And then as a, a talk show host, who I think has been on the air probably 
pretty much every day of his life since 1960. It's it's an incredible career spanning all those years. And, and as I said, he's still going strong, which gives hope to uh, the rest of us who haven't quite reached that age yet, but we're closing in on it. And, you know, there's, there's hope for us all. If you still think young and stink, think current and keep the brain active, uh, there's hope. Well, yeah, I, I have to tell you, you know, you mentioned, you, you said that you indicated you're getting up there, um, in terms of age, but your memory, I, I'm astounded to, to, when I speak with you off air, on air, just, just your, your memory is absolutely incredible. Um, and, and again, I'm not, uh, this is, this is not a mutual flattery session. It just amazes me when you, when you speak with people, uh, like yourself, you know, uh, I'm constantly amazed at, like, how you can remember names and dates, and this happened here, and uh, it's just amazing. So, anyway. Well, thank you, Dave. You know, part of that is that uh, the the era I grew up in, coming of age uh, into an awareness in the 1950s, the middle and late 50s, and then certainly in the 1960s, was really an incredible time, and uh, much like much like today, actually. And uh, if one had an interest in current affairs then, as I did from, I'd say, age five, and then had the opportunity to start working in that area as a journalist and a radio broadcaster, which is where I really started when I was at Georgetown University and was the news director, music director, and then station manager for two years of Georgetown's uh, FM radio station, which was actually a regular FM station with 22,000 watts of effective radiated power with a transmitter and a tower on what they called the hilltop where Georgetown University was situated. So our signal got out not only to the District of Columbia, but to the surrounding states. And uh, I was deeply involved in that work at the radio station for a number of years. Even after I left Georgetown, I continued to volunteer there. So uh, I could probably say, looking back, that my first love was always radio and talk radio in particular. And uh, so it's, it's something I grew up with. It made a tremendous influence on me uh, in that period. And, and on uh, one of the monitors behind me is a favorite photograph of uh, Senator Barry Goldwater, who uh, ran for president in 1964, right in the middle of that time period that I'm reflecting on right now. And he was the ideological father of conservatism in modern mid-century America and is given very little credit for that today. He wrote a seminal book in 1960, The Conscience of a Conservative. He managed to get the Republican presidential nomination in 1964, to run against uh, President Lyndon Baines Johnson. And, of course, he got shellacked in that election. The uh, mainstream media then was almost totally against him in ways that you can see a parallel to what they are doing now in a more focused and total manner against President Trump. But uh, Senator Goldwater laid the groundwork ideologically and practically in terms of his organization uh, in 1964 for the rise of conservatism that led to Ronald Reagan's election in 1980. And I think you can also draw uh, a line from Goldwater in 64 to the uh, 
the to what happened in 2016 with the election of, of Donald Trump, and maybe someday we'll have a chance to to delve into that subject. But um, you know, it was an incredible period, and I, I'm I'm so thankful that I actually was born when I was and came of age when I was, because a few years in either direction, either older or younger, and I think I would have missed some of the connections that were happening then. There were such amazing changes in the United States starting in the mid-1960s with the Cultural Revolution and everything that, that happened in the late 60s and then into the 70s. And, and my my life and my work, my coming of age then, paralleled almost perfectly uh, what was happening then. And, uh, it, you know, if you had your eyes open and you were paying attention and you had a press pass. It was an incredible time to be alive and to start working in in journalism, and I've never forgotten it. As a result, you've got you've got a lot of stories to tell too. Yeah, yeah. during a very historic time in in Washington and politics, and uh, where we're seeing parallels to that in the, during this administration. So, uh, Peter, let me ask you this: Does events and and media reports and Sediments from today remind you of of those days, or are we in in a whole different territory today? Yes and no. Yes, in the sense that the mainstream media has always been left of center, uh, and there have there has always been fake news uh, since the the 60s and the 70s. And in November, I wrote an article exclusive to the Hagman Report as to how I feel like I personally discovered fake news. Uh, 40 years earlier in 1977 and some of the reporting that I was doing. But what's, of course, more extreme today is the absolute uh, single voice of the mainstream media focused at taking down Donald Trump, destroying his presidency, and in completely, almost totally, covering up what's going on with the real scandals, which, uh, of course... You guys report on every day, Doug. You have been reporting on your radio show in the morning, uh, doing some of the most probing reporting on this. That is the scandals arising from the Obama administration, uh, the Democratic uh, Party and deep state, Hillary Clinton, and how they tried to engineer the uh, failure of Donald Trump in 2016 by uh, using the FBI and the Department of Justice, the National Security Surveillance State, and their ties with the mainstream media to plant stories about Trump. And then when he surprised them all and managed to get elected to the presidency, notwithstanding their best efforts, how they they started uh, a, a systematic campaign, which is still running now with the Mueller investigation, to try to bring him down any way they could after he assumed the presidency. And I, this goes on day in and day out, and there are skirmishes which come about, for example, in this past week with uh, the targeting of Trump because he allegedly did not uh, act soon enough to uh, get rid of his uh, high-level associate, Rob Porter, who is now being accused in this Me Too campaign of having uh, abused psychologically or even physically his first two wives. So he's accused. He is immediately left the administration when uh, the accusations came out publicly last week. 
But that's not enough for the mainstream media. I mean, earlier today I was torturing myself again by watching CNN for a while. It's it's what I have to do as someone who reports on the media. I can only take Hazard it in pay, small. Man. Hazard pay, I, brother. Really, absolutely. It it, it <laughs> it's torturous, and I can only take it in very short. Uh, Bites, five minutes, ten minutes, and you know, ten minutes of CNN. If you're a, a media critic, should give you an article's worth of material or more on everything that they are doing. That's all wrong, and of course, this has now been uh, confirmed by studies at the highest levels, including at places like uh, the Shorenstein Center of Harvard University, and. Um, uh, the Media Research Center and Newsbusters, which do their studies as well, evaluating the nature of the coverage on CNN and the other mainstream media. And it's just off the charts. It's 90, 95% or higher negative against Donald Trump. And we have never seen anything like that in the history of this country, certainly in the history of the electronic media going back to 1920. So that's something that's that's very different compared to the 1960s and 70s. We've discussed Watergate before, right. uh, the Watergate scandal, which there are some similarities and differences, and this is a major difference. Oh, and I wanted to mention this as well. You know, I've written um, several articles, one most recently yesterday, about this Fox News channel series called Scandalous that's running, and they had the fourth episode last night. They're doing seven episodes of the new series Scandalous, on the Clinton scandals through Bill Clinton's impeachment. And last night's part four, which was titled Developing... was the most uh, amazing and mind-boggling yet. Now, the series is not perfect, in my opinion, but it's the closest thing we've had to a an objective deconstruct of the scandals of the Clintons through Bill's impeachment. And last night's, which focused on the year 1998, is the year that the Lewinsky so-called scandal broke in January of that year, helped along by Matt Drudge, which put him on the map and, and his website, judgereport.com. And just in the chronological examination of the year 1998 last night on Fox News Scandalous, reminding us of how Bill Clinton, of course, was ultimately impeached because he lied under oath, he committed perjury, and not only that, he tried to bribe witnesses and suborn perjury. And this is exactly what Richard Nixon was going to be charged with had he been impeached. He was not actually impeached. As we know, uh, an impeachment vote was taken on four articles of impeachment in the House Judiciary Committee, so it looked like he would be impeached by the full House, but he was never impeached or tried in the Senate. Well, Bill Clinton was, and yet in all of the mainstream media reporting today on uh, Donald Trump and might he be impeached, or every time Representative Maxine Waters opens her mouth and says that he should be impeached, which is what she's been saying since the day he was inaugurated. The comparison by the MSM is made to Richard Nixon. When, you know, why shouldn't it be made to Bill Clinton, who was actually impeached and, and for exactly the same things that Nixon was being charged with? So, and, and by the way, 
in my opinion, they're going to have a hard time if they ever try to impeach President Trump. Even if they try to get him on obstruction of justice, I think that's going to be a, a hard, difficult call there. But, of course, who knows what special counsel Mueller will come up with because he's working in a different area, the legal area and not the political area. So, you know, the jury's still out on that one. Peter, uh, looking at this investigation, I came across an article that was from over a year ago uh, or almost a year ago in March of 2017 where they were talking about, you know, the uh, Russia investigation. It was from a BBC article and they were saying how no proof exists of the Trump-Russia collusion that, you know, sure, there, there was going to come out with Mueller's investigation. And we've seen that he has moved completely beyond any type of Russian collusion and is, it seems to be strictly focusing on obstruction of justice. With the FISA memo, with all the information that's come out, do you think even if Mueller does lend a charge of obstruction on Trump that he would, that the American, do you think that there's enough credibility left in Robert Mueller with the American public that a charge would stick against Trump? Ultimately, I hope not. Uh, ultimately, I, I don't know because things are so skewed now. You know, the farther we get into this, into this uh, year, and even last year looking back, when I look for uh, people or, or groups or uh, things to blame for the mess that we're in as a society and a culture and in terms of how, how messed up everything is, I have to put near or at the top of the list the corruption of the country's news media. The news media is supposed to be the ultimate check and balance on corruption and fraud. And now we see that, except for Fox News in terms of the mainstream media, the media is up to its eyeballs in their own corruption and fraud from which issue lies deception and cover-up on a, a daily, if not hourly, basis. We only have to look at uh, most of the mainstream media, the alphabet networks, uh, CNN, MSNBC, with the sole occasional exception of Fox News, to see this fraud and cover-up everywhere. So that the uh, Nunez memo and the Graham um, uh, Grassley that right memo that came out after that last week have largely been covered up. Right. You know, it's like they, they don't exist in the mainstream media. And I, I read an article this afternoon by uh, Ezra Klein, who uh, for some reason real clear politics links to almost every day. And, and he had a black is white article on how the attempts by, according to him, Fox News and the Trump administration or the Trump administration working hand in glove with the propagandists at Fox News have failed in their effort to establish the Nunez memo and the rest of their spin that this is just completely failing and what's going to carry the day is the investigation into the Trump collusion and the Trump corruption or, or, or uh, uh, the Trump uh, Obstruction of justice, according to Ezra Klein and the left-wing MSM that he is speaking for. So, you know, it's really anybody's guess. As, as we've said before, we are entering, in my opinion, 
the battle of our lives here, the second American revolution. Are we going to be able, and are the truth tellers out there on the internet and talk radio and at Fox News going to be able to save the day and really establish the truth that we are dealing with? Or are we going to be overwhelmed ultimately by the tsunami of lies and corruption that's issuing from every uh, data point, every 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 place in this culture, not only the mainstream media, but the popular culture, academia, public schools, and, and pretty much every place else, with some exceptions here and there, including this program, I might add. And I'm so cheered when I see the... Uh, the numbers of people who are accessing this program. Now, there was a, a recent YouTube uh, posting of an entire show, The Hagman Report, which got around 60,000 views in podcast form on YouTube. I mean, that, that is just incredible. And I know that's not even, John has told me that's not even your most popular uh, platform, that Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, and some of the other platforms that you're on are are bringing in even a larger audience from time to time. 70 so, million downloads last year. 70 million. So, you yeah. know, this and the other programs of its kind, as well as Fox News, I mean, I think the last time we got together a week ago, I was commenting on how Fox News ran away with the ratings on the night of the State of the Union. They had over 11 million uh, total viewers that night, which was the l- number one Platform for people accessing uh, mainstream media coverage of of the uh, State of the Union. And by the way, to show how uh, ephemeral fame is in this area, Bill O'Reilly, who if this were one year ago now, uh, Bill O'Reilly would have been uh, prominent in Fox News coverage of the State of the Union because he had yet to be fired from Fox News. He was the number one talk show host. Well, I didn't even know this until after the fact, but on the night of the State of the Union, O'Reilly, Bill O'Reilly had been enlisted to be a commentator on, uh, I think it was, um, uh, I'm forgetting the name of the obscure network now that's out there. Uh, I'm thinking WorldNet Daily, but no, what's Newsmax? Newsmax, Newsmax yep. Television. Yep. So they hired Bill O'Reilly to come in that night as a ratings lure, and it was a complete bomb. They only had 10,000 total viewers, which was less than one one thousandth the viewers that Fox News had, and uh, that that uh, that network or channel is on many cable and satellite channels around the country. So, you know, it shows that when, you, when you're when you gone from Fox News or a pro- prominent position, unfortunately, you're yesterday's news. No matter how many fans you've still got out there, it's, it's not easy. So, you know, on that night, I think the Hagman Report had many more viewers than Newsmax Television on your platforms. So, uh, it's amazing. I, I thought, yeah, it yeah. really is amazing. And, I, you know, this is the new media. The passion and, and intelligence of the people who are your regular listeners and viewers who are communicating with me now through my Twitter platform, and that is, of course, twitter.com slash pchalka, which is illustrated on one of the monitors behind me. And I invite everyone within the sound of our voice to please check out my Twitter. You don't have to be a member of Twitter to check it out. And I tweet links to my articles and to 
announcements of these broadcasts and podcasts of these broadcasts because we're all working together on this. And I really appreciate people who do have a Twitter account going there and please retweeting and um, liking me or following me. And by the way, a shout-out to people on Twitter. Please go to my Twitter and scroll down one to my tweet about Celia Farber yesterday, yep. uh, who is Barry Farber's daughter. And uh, uh, again, just a, a brilliant investigative journalist and, and one of the most courageous whom I've ever met. And, and she suffered greatly. Her career suffered for an article that she wrote. She managed to write in 2006 for Harper's Magazine a 14-page article in which she spoke truth to the power of AIDS Incorporated. That was an area that she specialized in writing about over the years, and I did a lot of writing in that area as well, which is how I first became aware of Celia's work. And because of this courageous pioneering article that she managed to get published in Harper's, the heart of the mainstream media, um, a, a lot of, of negativity was unleashed on her and her career suffered as a result. And But she's still out there writing. Uh, she's got a Twitter account and a very impressive website, truthbarrier.com, which I mentioned in this tweet. But people really need to retweet that, like that tweet, and and follow Celia Farber because she is is absolutely deserving of our attention, and, and by the way, she is. Um, she's also uh, she's she's not a a right winger or a left winger. She's an independent mind, but she uh, I believe she has M A G A at her Twitter profile. So I think she's on the same track as as a lot of us now who are realizing that the stakes are very high. That what we're dealing with is is the survival of the United States and uh, we better get our act together here and and you know go forward and and she's uh, she's one of those people doing that now. Yeah, I I've by the way I I have known about her for a while and I don't know why it never made that connection to uh uh her father but nonetheless fantastic by the way. So uh Well, she's you know she's she's made her own career. I think it would have been easy for her to say, hey, I'm Barry Farber's daughter. Right. But she never, she never did that. She doesn't deny. I mean, she certainly, if you get to know her, to know her work, it becomes obvious. And the two of them are very close to this point. But, uh, you know, she really made it on her own. And uh, if there's a Hall of Fame for investigative journalists, she should be in it. You know, I also tweeted within the past several days a link to Cheryl Atkinson who I would put in the same category. You know, Cheryl is a few years older than Celia, but they're both just outstanding, principled, pioneering, courageous investigative journalists still plying their trade, still making incredible contributions to our knowledge of how the world really works, and and they deserve our attention and support and our readership as well. Yeah, exactly. They they do. Uh, Go ahead. The internet, Peter, really uh, has given a lot of people the ability to either as a, a hobby or as a full-time gig uh, become journalists, citizen journalists, as we see 
you know, the, what we, we see what we expect from the mainstream media, which is, you know, all fluff, no action, you know, no real facts, no real meat. Um, they, they just, you know, kind of go with the flow and, and, and that's always against President Trump. But this has really opened up, uh, an opportunity, uh, as, as the information through the internet spreads and, and the access and availability for a number of people to get involved on, on a number of different levels. I mean, anything from writing a, a paragraph a week on a, on a subject that may be used to send to, to the editor of a newspaper. Now you can have a blog or post it on somebody else's website. And I think a lot of people are, are drawn to that. And then you see the people who are successful at it have been people who've worked at it for a little bit and stayed with it. But it's opened up, um, you know, the, the possibilities on the alternative media are really endless. And I don't think we've, we've barely scratched the surface. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in addition to that, Joe, we have a, a lot of people. I mean, there might be millions of them at this point. Nobody knows who uh, don't even call themselves citizen jur- journalists or present themselves as such. They are primarily working in platforms of social media like Twitter. I mean, I've made uh, contact and friends with several really dedicated people on Twitter who are, uh, you know, they would probably consider themselves ordinary Americans, quote unquote. But they they become in effect citizen journalists using their Twitter platforms to uh, to express and share the research that they are doing. Some of them on an incredibly dedicated level, you know, tweeting uh, multiple times a day, and and sometimes they're missing the mark. Ad- admittedly, you know, they're just putting a lot out there, but they're also aware that they are sifting through the incredible amount of material that's out there now on the internet and calling attention to it and admittedly they're saying sometimes they're putting stuff out there which which maybe isn't kosher it's not a hundred percent but uh, you know so what that's how we learn we sift through this material and 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 we we find sources that are credible and we return to them they represent a standard for us but I'm really appreciating what what these new uh, Twitter contacts of mine are are direct messaging to me on a, a very frequent basis, and I'm I'm able to check out a lot of these things which otherwise I I wouldn't have found. So it's like a two way street now, and and this is something that is just growing uh, incrementally and exponentially and inexorably towards I think uh, the next. Touchstone, which will be the election this coming November, and what happens then, and and you know the the fight, the battles leading up to that election, as we see whatever Mueller is going to be doing, and these memos that are coming out, the Democrat memo is the next one that's going to hit. <laughs> you know, yeah. so I, I I am I'm thinking that's the the strength of our movement that we can't even measure yet, but I'm getting a sense of it, a direct sense through being on Twitter and comparing notes with some of these folks now. And I, I really think it's, uh, you know, it's we've seen the tip of the iceberg and what's below that iceberg, we have no idea yet. But I, I have I have to have confidence and hope that it's going to help to carry the battle forward into our second American revolution here. Well, speaking of second American revolution, and this is because you brought this up earlier about Ezra Klein, that uh, I don't know what universe, what planet he's, I don't know what planet he's living on. Uh, uh, his his reference to Fox and their alternative universe in terms of 
alternative facts, I guess. All that said, w- w- number one, qu- question one: Do you believe that? Um, well, what? Did, well, no, I'll just ask it the way I was going to ask it. Do you believe that the story of the attempted overthrow of Don- Donald Trump by the left? I just got shuddered thinking about this or saying this by the progressive left. I mean, isn't this the biggest story of our lifetimes? Or am I just overstating this? No. Absolutely right on true. Because we're living through it at this moment and the layers of the onion are being peeled back one layer at a time, uh, you can lose, you know, even even if you have a, a, a respect for history and you have memory and you're of a certain age and so you have something to compare this to, it's hard to real, even for us, for me, I should say, to realize the depth of and, and the importance of this story or this constellation of stories that we're dealing with, all of which come under the heading of the national security state, the surveillance state, the corruption of politics thanks to the Democrat Socialist Party and the shadow government and the deep state. Yes, what they have done leading up to the election of 2016, what they have done since then to try to, uh, cons- well, well, they've conspired to take down the presidency of Donald Trump and what they have up their sleeves for the future is absolutely the biggest political story, certainly of modern times. And if, as some have said, maybe it's the biggest political story going back to the first American revolution. It might even eclipse the Civil War. Now, of course, we're going to be... Anybody who says that opens himself or herself to attack from the Ezra Kleins of the world, who, in my opinion, is nothing but a socialist punk. There you go. I had some experience with him going back to 2007 when he was just, he was wet behind the ears at that point, but he was the emerging wunderkind of the left, a recent graduate of some college in California who made his mark with early blogging and this guy came out of the woodwork and even took me on uh, when I was writing about Michael Moore and his sick socialist medicine, pro-socialist medicine movie, Sicko, in 2007. And uh, Klein wrote a lot about his preference for socialized medicine back then. And, of course, he went on to the Washington Post and... Uh, Wherever he's at now, what does he write for Vox now? For Vox, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this guy is a low-life sewer dweller, in my personal opinion. And, uh, you know, he's a consummate propagandist liar, in my opinion. Well, the, the, they're, 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 now he's not going to send you a Christmas card next year. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's still the toast of the town. You know, he's he can name his ticket in the salons of Washington, D.C. and Georgetown. But... Uh, you know, I read him just to get a, a real clear sense of what the shadow government and the deep state is cooking up because, in my opinion, he's one of their top uh, propagandists. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you on that. And, and speaking of, of Klein and, and his ilk um, and, and the issue of the attempt to uh, to really to overturn an election, everything you spoke about, I just got to ask you, um, do you think we are going to make it through this summer? Well, let me pull back a minute and ask you this. If President Donald Trump was subjected to an obstruction of justice charge, because there's still an issue 
whether he can be there can be any charges levied, or if you can indict a sitting president, mm-hmm. nineteen seventy three and two thousand being two uh, legal opinions. But having said that, if there's any indication of if Mueller comes back and says, you know what, um, he's a he's an unindicted co-conspirator, for example, of uh, Russian collusion or whatever charge would relate to that, or obstruction of justice. I know you don't have a crystal ball, but do you think there's going to be any blowback by the conservative base out there, or are we just a bunch of wimps that talk that do nothing but talk and type? All I can say is the the battle lines are drawn. Nothing would surprise me at this point. I mean, again, as we've said before, every time we've gotten together, almost since last summer, every day you wake up and there's a new uh, bunch of mud a new story that's emerged overnight in an attempt to add fuel to the fire of destroying the Trump presidency. Now, we have yet to see uh, a huge enough story that could maybe uh, provide the uh, the real ammunition to do that, and I use ammunition in its metaphorical sense, hopefully. But, uh, you know, nothing would surprise me. They've got all kinds of tricks up their sleeve, and, you know, recently a name ha- has emerged... Sidney Blumenthal, a.k.a. Sid Vicious. And, uh, you know, when you were discussing the first hour, well, who's who's behind some of this dirt, you know, uh, the the memos, the the fake memos, the dossier? Well, you know, it looks more and more like Sidney Blumenthal, a name from the past there, might have had some role in this. And we'll we'll see what emerges there. But. Uh, I'm going to tweet to him uh, or tweet about him shortly. I, I plan to get around to this today, but didn't have a chance. Uh, in researching him, I discovered an excellent informational takedown, deconstruct of Sidney Blumenthal. People probably ask, well, who is this guy? This is a name from the past, but he's been working for the Clintons ever since. And Discover the Networks has a, a really long uh, biography of, of oh, yeah. who is Sidney yep. Blumenthal. So I'm going to tweet to that specific link. The or third way. The guy behind the third way, uh, or the proponent of the third way, Sidney Blumenthal. Also the uh, originator of the uh, birther movement? Well, yeah, he, he was, he, actually he was <laughs> on the Clinton side. Not the birther movement, That's but, why he but, was not but a, the Kenyan story. That's why right. when, uh, I forget who it was, when Clinton was hired, in the State Department, she tried to bring him on, yeah, and they yeah. said no. Uh, he is right. not going to be working in this administration. He was too hot for the Obamas to contend with, That's so they so kept something. him at arm's length. But he continued to be employed and paid by the Clintons in all the years that she was Secretary of State. I think at the, you know, one of the Clinton quote unquote charities, he had a, a job there. Yep. And he, you know, he's a mudslinger from a way back. I mean, this guy, in fact, I was looking for some photographs of him current to illustrate the tweet that I'm preparing. And it's like the picture of Dorian Gray. Most of the pictures of him out there are the younger Sidney Blumenthal. What he looks like today, in my opinion, is, is increasingly frightening. This guy is wearing his life history on his face now, like Dorian Gray. If, if people re- can relate to that that book and movie, but uh, it's 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 a story that I hope can can you know I hope he I hope he uh, kind of hope he had some role there and we can get a fresh look at Sidney Blumenthal and maybe he will be called to account for his role in this and maybe some of his earlier activities because uh, you know there's a character but uh, we shall see but 
Uh, you know, again, nothing. You know, when you try to predict what's going to happen this year, I think it, it reminds me of the year 1968, 49 years ago, which was probably the wildest year in the modern history of the United States, the year when the Cultural Revolution really hit, when there were the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Robert F. Kennedy, uh, the uh, riots in the streets of the Democratic Convention, and the election of Richard Nixon. You know, it was a year that, uh, wow, you know, I, I'll never forget, and I've studied it even since, and books have been written about that year. Documentaries have been done on the year with the title 1968, and I think the year 2018, oh, it's 50 years, we're a little out of it here, 50 years ago, right? I, I wasn't going to correct And in fact, <laughs> at this point, uh, 1958, it was a leap year. So once we get to the end of February, it will be different. But this year, this day, February 12th, 1968, was the same day of the week as this year, 2018. Oh, really? That will, that will change once we hit the end of February because uh, 68 was a leap year so there was an extra day in there so when we hit March it will be one day off but nonetheless I, I keep thinking back to that year 50 years ago dating myself but wow hold on to your hats because I think this by the time we get to the end I'll make this prediction by the time we we get to the end of 2018 if assuming we get to the end of 2018 in one piece and we're able to communicate as we are now, I think we will we will see that this year has eclipsed in the history of modern America, 1968. So that's, that's how I will wrap that prediction up with a bow. But uh, by the way, I wanted to, is she in the picture here, Miss Lulu? Uh, a little bit, yeah. There's a, there's uh, a, a panther. There. I can't there's see a black face. panther. Another cameo appearance, but she has the habit of positioning herself a little off camera. Hey, Lulu. <laughs> that was a friendly bite there. I don't know if you saw. <laughs> Lulu is her. You actually have our studio dogs, both Theo and Lady, looking at the uh, multiple monitors here at, at the, at the Look, cat. This is your moment in the sun, Lulu. You know, I, when you were discussing um, support animals earlier, yes. my favorite story of recent week was, was the woman who tried to take the peacock on the airplane and was uh, refused. <sighs> Because I had actually some experience with peacocks. Uh, a decade ago when my mother passed on and I inherited her house in Connecticut and I finally got there and nobody had been living there for the two months since she passed away. And uh, guess who took up residence on the lawn? It was a family of four peacocks. Well, wait a minute. They, in Connecticut? They had, yes. They had flown in. They can actually fly. And they had landed in a, in a house across the street. This is a cul-de-sac street with 11 homes on it. They had taken up residence across the street, but they were shooed away by the residents there. So since nobody was living at my mother's house by then, there was nobody to shoo them away, they took re up residence in my mother's yard. So when I got there, this was the coolest thing I'd have ever seen with these peacocks because they immediately identified me as a friend. And I was giving them, uh, you know, potato chips and breadcrumbs. And so they would come over to meet me every day when I went over there to uh, help to take care of the property and to go through the house. And after a month of this, it was the really the high point of my day. 
Um, they allowed me to get very close to them, and I took a number of incredible photographs. Maybe next week I'll put one of them up on the monitor or send one to uh, Eric to display during our uh, our encounter next Monday at 9 p.m. Eastern. Uh, the next-door neighbor uh, didn't like the peacocks because I guess in the middle of the night they would uh, fly up to a tree branch and make a lot of noise. So he threatened to shoot them and contacted the town government so based on these threats, they came and uh, captured the peacocks and took them away, supposedly, to a sanctuary. But I was heartbroken when one day I showed up there and the peacocks were gone. So uh, I don't know. I never thought that you could form a bond with peacocks, but uh, I felt like I was living on some you know, expansive English estate with, with peacocks. On, on on the property, right? Well, you didn't try to take them on a plane with you, though. I mean, you know, <laughs> no. And I, the thought never even crossed my mind. I thought, well, and they actually had wintered there. They flew in to that street at the height of winter, so they are hardy birds. And uh, I I didn't know much about them. You know, I started, of course, researching them, and and you know, they're not only beautiful animals. I mean, incredible, but uh, you know, they're very interesting in their own right. So when I heard the story of this uh, this passenger traveler with her peacock, I thought, you know, <laughs> don't put it down out of hand because, may, you know, well, no. you could definitely form an association, <laughs> which I would have otherwise done, you know, when I didn't know anything previously about peacocks. And, and Peter, that, I don't think that's the issue. I think the reaction uh, by some of the people who are denied or, or turned down uh, from these emotional, bringing these emotional support animals on are what people... Um, you know, usually get upset about. Right. Um, and they are large birds. I mean, I, yeah. I would never think of trying to travel with a peacock. I mean, they're they're larger than wild turkeys. Yeah, not unless you bought a seat for it. I, I can't imagine. Well, even then, you might have to buy like a row, but <laughs> yeah. uh, given their plumage. But, and they're but, not, you know, they can be unfriendly too. I mean, some people consider them aggressive, obnoxious, and threatening animals. Now, they took a liking to me, I think, because... You know, I'm an animal lover, and I think they perceive that. Plus, from day one, I was tossing out little bits of food Potato to them. Chips. You yeah. only have to do that once, and they're going to be your friends for life. Absolutely. So, we, uh, we, look, we, we thank you so much. Uh, we know it was short notice, but uh, thanks for coming on tonight and starting your Between the Lines segment uh, early, a uh, week early. Thank you. Um, I'll be joined each week at this time by Lulu and or Biggie. was Lulu tonight. So we'll try to put on a good show uh, every week at this time, 9 to 10 Eastern on the Hagman Report. And we're going to be looking forward to your appearance tomorrow as well on, tell us again, it was on the... Barry Farber, and go to my Twitter for go. the uh, uh, for how to tune into that or to access the podcast. Super. And go to, go to Pete Schalke on Twitter. In fact, yep. uh, it'll be in the program description. Thanks, Peter. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you all. so much. All right. That'll do it for us tonight. God bless. Stay safe.